morning and welcome to Alosa Fumar Takes. This is our 274th take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Azle, Texas. I'm your host, Barry Duplessis, as always, and I'm so proud, so pleased, and so privileged to be with you all tonight. This is going to be a fantastic show. It always is, but when you have distinguished gentlemen like I do tonight as guests, it's always going to be a barn burner. We're going to have some duels going on tonight. We've already been, It's already been promised to our guests, so they're going to bring out the best of their perspectives and uh, their wits and wagers and all the good times and all the good fun. It's going to be fantastic, but we've got some great things to discuss with these two guys, but before we get to introductions of our guests of honor we do have to thank the people that, that make this show possible that of course is our sponsors and tonight's show is sponsored by drew estate drew estate is bringing it back yes the cult classic the irrelevant yes chateau real is coming back from drew estate originally drew introduced the chateau real brand to the domestic market just prior to the historic opening of the factory for Drew Estate and Nestle Nicaragua in 2007. Interestingly, after a vibrant and emotional brand launch, the cigar brand mysteriously melted away and became that of only folklore, legend, and even controversy. While Chateau Real brand never reached the worldwide prestige of Liga Privada, Undercrown, and Herrera Esteli. Its birth came at a pivotal inflection moment for the young, ambitious Drew Estate brand. As Drew Estate worked relentlessly to build legitimacy and expand its boundaries beyond the world of infused cigars and into the traditional market, Chateau Real was the first big real step. Chateau, along with all of its secrets, has since become one of the most sought-after Drew Estate ghosts. With collectors keeping the brand as its folklore alive, we simply had to resurrect this price, uh, the, this prince of a brand, excuse me, exclaims Jonathan Drew, founder and president of Drew Estate. I'm absolutely thrilled that we are bringing this affordable brand back to market. Good shit that everyone can afford and feel intelligent purchasing. So go get the Chateau Real once again from Drew Estate, bringing back the classic goodie, but an oldie, oldie, but a goodie. And welcome, everybody. This is our 274th take. So without further ado, it is my pleasure, my privilege, my honor to welcome in these two distinguished gentlemen from the Premium Cigar Association director, Scott Pierce, and board member, Jay Davis. Gentlemen, how are we doing tonight? Splendid. How are you doing, Bear? I'm doing absolutely fantastic, doing sensational, had a cup of coffee before we started tonight. That's where the energy comes from. That's where everyone always nice. asks me. So everyone always asks me, like, where do you get it? And I'm just like, I stay, tea. I stay calm. Yeah, I've got some tea going on, too. Stay calm before the storm, launch down some coffee, and then we're off to the races and everything. So you had an epic meal tonight, Scott. You were telling us about that. That was pretty – that was that sounded pretty fucking good, so – why don't you yeah. what was on the menu today? <laughs> yeah, I uh, cooked up some beef tenderloin and some uh, good old bacon, mac and cheese, mashed potatoes, and some uh, cinnamon roll app and apple tartlets for dessert with some vanilla ice cream. So it was a um, it's a good meal. It was kind of a post-Thanksgiving. Some people weren't able to be there, so uh, had some other people that came. And so tonight was the night we decorated the tree and decided to you know kind of go all out with a nice big meal before the holiday crush gets us. Nice. Nice. You, uh, you made the ice cream yourself, too. That was scratch made, too, right? <laughs> no, but I did make the red wine reduction uh, gravy sauce to go on the uh, the tenderloin, so it was good. Nice. Fantastic. Jay worked a double, so I'm sure he had what, – what you, what'd you eat tonight, Jay? Did you get some Heim barbecue? Did you at least get some good food in here, or did you, or did you have something else? Uh, I did the, the big kahuna from uh, Jersey Mike's, which – I would never take a picture of it because Coop would say it wasn't a proper Philly because it has mushrooms and jalapenos. And, of course, my favorite, uh, potato chips with salt and vinegar. Oh, and I see, of course. 
I love salt and vinegar potato chips. It's such a, I don't know, like they used to be such like a hot take and then it became like really cool and in style again, which was kind of nice. I love salt and vinegar chips. So, but I think it's also a regional thing. Isn't that like a Northern thing? Salt and vinegar? I don't know. I, I think so. I never liked it as a kid, but it's one of those many, many things I enjoy now that as a kid I didn't enjoy. Oh. Scott, is that, I mean, where, how are you, where do you stand on salt and vinegar chips? I love them. I mean, I love most potato chips. I got to tell you, though, I had a um, I still feel like it was a fever dream, but my kids backed me up on this that they saw it. It was at CVS one time after my kids orthodontist appointment and I found the holy grail of chips for me, which was ketchup Doritos. I'm one. I'm a psychopath because I was a kid with dipped Doritos in ketchup and I found ketchup flavored Doritos and bought the bag and ate them and loved them. And I can't find them anymore. I feel like they were teasing me, but my kids have all sworn uh, on their holy Bibles that they in fact did see me buy purchase and, and consume the ketchup Doritos, but you know, I can't find them anymore. I'm, I also, I put chips on, on sandwiches all, all the time. And so oh, you got I to. love the salt and vinegar on the sandwiches. Yeah. You know, Straight up Dorito, regular nacho cheese Doritos on on a good Italian sub for me is about one of the best sandwich combos you can ever get. I made the kids smash burgers the other day, and I had some salt and vinegar chips left over, and so like I had the caramelized onions, this the uh, a smash sauce that I make, which is just a bunch of shit put together. That you know, it's like Thousand Island on crack, you know. Uh, that's how you get your energy is to yeah. crack in your thousand island yeah yeah exactly so the smash sauce and then it like also had some salt and vinegar chips just yeah it was it was just baller of texture and flavor and yeah yeah that great. crunch you, you can't beat it especially when you got soft bread and then you got the crunch and then the meat comes into play really good stuff all around all around well gentlemen again thank you so much for being a part of the show tonight i really do appreciate it i know that again this is uh we're going to get into this here in just a little bit but normally i mean it's always a busy time at pca um, but normally, you know, but uh, things are not normal this year. So we're going to get into that here in a little bit. Um, but uh, before we get to do uh, that, we have to get to some official business. Uh, uh, Jay's already smoking. Jay, what are you smoking tonight? Well, I'm smoking a Don Carlos Personal Reserve, which was limited to PCA uh, people a couple of years ago. And then my next plan is, you see this, the, the Arroyo PCA exclusive. I think hands down the best uh, exclusive this year. And then the 2022 Tatsuai, I've smoked a couple boxes of those, so I guess I approve of those as well. Uh, not to sound like a homer, PCA exclusives, there's hits and there's misses, but there have been some amazing ones. And I think what Christian's done with the, the three releases this year were great, but the Arroyo is the bell of the ball, in my opinion. Great work, nice. Christian Arroyo. Nice, nice. Fantastic. Scott, are you smoking tonight? I am. I, uh, I've got a, I've got a room set up downstairs now. Um, and you know, I got the clearance to go ahead and, and smoke. I got the window open, the rabbit air. I got stuff blocking stuff off. So I am smoking inside my house. And, uh, so yeah, I've got the, uh, this, this is the first, um, to leave a Siri G. This was something, Oliva sent us a bunch of these for our fundraisers. So we had a few of these left over. And so, um, you know, it, it, it the job has perks. So I took a few of them and it's upstairs in my humidor. So I grabbed one for tonight. Fantastic. There you go. Well, uh, as always, as a tradition on the show, uh, we've got uh, I've got a selection of cigars to choose from. And so, uh, Jay, in honor of the fact that you worked a double, even though you work doubles every day, Scott, I would thought would give Jay the chance to pick my cigar tonight. So I've got three selections for you. I've got a box here of something very, very special from our friends at Drew Estate. This is the Selection Diamarcado, which is actually only available uh, on European markets. So I was able to get a box of these this is fantastic so i'll crack that open jay, uh, jay if that's your pick but i also have 
another fan favorite here uh, for me, the LaFord Dominicana Andalusian Bull um, in honor of rating season coming up. And then um, another one that I just I think is an absolutely fantastic cigar. Uh, the four kicks uh, made exclusively for Casa de Monte Cristo. So, um, I which had that one. I, I, in hindsight now, I, I just completely missed the dig. Jay, I apologize about that. I know they're a direct competitor of yours. They're just down the street. So that was not, a, that was not a, <laughs> that was not intentional. I just realized that as soon as I said that out loud. So <laughs> not, not a the... dig at all. <laughs> if we have time later, I'll tell you how Casa de Monte Cristo has helped my business. In a good way for both companies. Um, have you smoked today? Uh, actually, I have not. Believe it or not, it's crazy. I would I would go with the the Liga Ten, and uh, certainly you can throw one in the mail for me tomorrow. That that looks like an amazing cigar. I can do that. Um, but the Casa de Monte Cristo and Crown Heads have done some good things. The was it the Musica one they did? That was phenomenal. Oh, the Ciudad de Musica. Yeah, that's oh. fantastic. Yeah. Made uh, with uh, at uh, uh, La Alianza by Ernesto Perez Carrillo. Man, what a what a what a just a triumvirate of talent there. We got crowned heads, Ernesto Perez Carrillo, Monte Cristo brand. Like Jesus, man, it was lethal, lethal combination. Good stuff. Cool. Well, I'm gonna pop this open here. Uh, something I've always appreciated about Drew Estate. Just a little selfless uh, take here for my my advertising partners here. But like, I love the fact that they. They don't, they actually have the box that you can open it. Like, we don't have to, like, sever, oh, as a retailer, the, sever the labels. I absolutely love that about Drew State and Hoya's cigars. That when you open the box, you take the cellophane off, with rare exception, sometimes with Hoya, it's sealed. It's just ready to open. And those microseconds add up over the year. I love opening packages of Drew State. They're always barcoded, they're always well laid out. They do a good job. Yeah, these are, these are absolutely gorgeous looking. I mean, shoot, man, this is fantastic. Not if you guys are used to seeing, um, you know, when you think of Liga, you think of that really dark, oily wrapper. But this is a different type of Kappa that they use. Um, you know, it's Connecticut Criollo, so like you get that little bit of a lighter shade on the cigar. So I'm gonna pick mine with care here. So excited about this. Um, so thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for picking my cigar tonight. Um, <clears throat> So, um, just, uh, I got to do something fun today too. And I just, I know it's probably been a long time for you guys. You guys all have older kids now, but I actually got to do the Santa visit today with my boys. So that was a lot of fun. Did you make it through without crying? They've been really good, man. They've been really good throughout their entire, like, I mean, from the, <clears throat> from their first one, from Jeremiah's first one to my youngest, Jacob, they've, they've never had a crying incident. Um, my youngest is afraid of flashes now. So he was like covering his eyes when the camera was going off. So we got some pretty comical pictures, but hopefully but no. that maintains through, you know, teenage and into, you know, young adulthood so that we don't have to worry about him at all night raves. Right. Right. Yeah. But, uh, they've been, I mean, it was dead. <laughs> That was good, Scott. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, it was it was a it was a lot of fun, man. It, it's uh, it was certainly been my day, so it was, uh, it was good stuff. But uh, um, well, don't leave uh, us in suspense. What are they? What's Santa bringing them? What do they want? So it was really cool, man. They they put together a list. So they had construction paper with the pictures, all of the things they wanted, all spaced out and everything. And so it was they they like 
my even my littlest one he was going through he's pointing through everything and stuff it was just really great so like um i mean my my oldest son loves building shit so he's all about the legos he also wants a nintendo switch which i don't know if santa can make that uh we'll find out later um uh, but um and then just a couple of other trucks and things like that he's always loved construction and building and then um, my youngest really wants a, um, the new Disney movie wish. He really wants a wish water bottle. That was like his thing. So I'm like, that's easy. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah I know. I was like solid. Cool. My uh, kids are too conniving. They're old enough to know. And they, I, and I know that they know that Santa Claus is in fact, not, you know, the Santa doesn't bring them gifts and go down the chimney. And everything. But this is how conniving they are is that they still claim with as much childhood innocence as they can muster that they want to write Santa letters. They want to ask Santa for gifts because in their brain, they can leverage more gifts and more fantastic gifts. If they're asking the fat man for a gift, <laughs> I just say, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> no. Yeah. My son wrote Santa this <laughs> very in-depth letter and he said, I'm going to send this to Santa. I was like, I'm right here. Bring it to me. So I, he capitulated and handed me this, this letter, this thought out way of him asking for this, you know, whatever gaming console I think he was asking for or something along those lines. I said, yeah. Santa's my response is to were, earn the money yourself. My parents were Jedi's when it came to Santa. They had specific uh, wrapping paper and bows and ribbons that were just for Santa. And a lot of times when he asked for certain things, they'd say, no, we can't do that. Maybe Santa can. And they did that consistently through my whole childhood that they never use the same wrapping paper from them as opposed to Santa. They, I don't know how they kept that organized, but they had a system and they were good at it. That's what we did until my son found the wrapping paper under our bed. <laughs> I was, I was telling this story earlier today. Like when I, I basically berated it out of my mother to tell me, and then I was fucking devastated when I, when she you know, revealed the truth to me. So it was my own fault. Like I, you know, I mean, I just like ripped it out of my mind, but I was devastated afterwards. It was awful. So, uh, awful experience. So, I'm just basically written it ride with the boys. I'm like, they'll they'll either they'll figure it out. I'm, I'm but I'm I'm never gonna tell them. I don't care. Like they can call me a liar at the end of the day. I don't care. I'm like, no, I, I'd rather have that than the devastation of what I went through. So yeah, my wife didn't play that. There was Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. None of that stuff. Day one, she just told the truth, but she's like, don't tell your friends. And I don't think they were too damaged by it. But for me, I like the mystery of it. I don't think I found out until I was nine or ten. So, yeah, I know I only got a year or two left, probably with Jeremiah. So that's 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 the that's the sad thing. But the, the Santa visits never get old. They never do, man. So it's cool. Good times. Good times. All right. Well, let's get on to tonight's major point, which is always brought to you by the people. Yes, cigar people. The people who know everything about a lifetime of service. Protocol Cigars is more than just pool parties and good times. Well, maybe it is. But behind the fun is a motivation for service, a motivation for giving back. From the original Protocol Blue to the latest release of the Lawman series, Phoebe Cousins, Protocol has always been about honor, passion, and yes, the people. It's what their life's work has been and always will be about. Power of the P, Protocol Cigars. Well, gentlemen, it has been a fantastic year for the PCA, uh, 2023. Um, and, uh, and there's obviously more to come here in the early 2024, which we'll get into, but there was something I wanted to ask you guys. And I, and, and if, I, and if I was remiss and missed it, I want to, I will first just go ahead and preface with an apology, but are we not doing anything for the 90th anniversary of the premium cigar association? I mean, that's, it's not the hundred, but it seems like a pretty big milestone. 
Yeah, not really. For the mere fact, if it's kind of a little bit of a, of a weird situation because we skipped a year uh, because of the of the cancellation. Oh, okay. So it's kind of this weird thing and stuff. And so um, we'll, we'll, we'll not, not necessarily with the show. Um, you'll see some things next year in, in some stuff that we do. Uh, but I mean, really, here's the funny thing is um, uh, one of my first jobs in associations, uh, we had a hundredth year anniversary and we planned that thing years in advance, like seven, eight years in advance. Oh, wow. um, so as we're, as we're looking at, at uh, 2033, 2033, um, I mean, look, we're, we're starting the contract out through 30, 2030, 2031 right now for future trade shows. Uh, so the, the planning will likely kick off with a committee in probably about two years to start planning for the 100th anniversary. And that's really kind of what we're looking at here. 80, 90, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously remark it and we'll do some things PR wise, I think, and some stuff and some stories. Um, and obviously we'll probably not, not that we won't do anything at the trade show. We'll, we'll clearly, you know, remark it at the trade show and, and do some stuff, but we're, the big one is really the centennial. Sure. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So, um, I was I was just curious. Okay, so I, yeah, I didn't think about the skip trade show. I was just thinking about the anniversary of the organization. But you you guys are looking at yeah. it from a trade show standpoint. Okay, that makes sense. That's interesting. Okay, um, well, uh, to that point, so here here's a interesting conundrum because of way the way that the board rotates, right? And some people with the the terms that only that some people set that some people, excuse me, serve at. Now you're obviously not at that. Um, that's not the way your position works, Scott, but like what, I mean, when you talk about planning something like that years in advance, I mean, what does that look like with yeah, so, coming in and out and stuff? Yeah. Normally what you do is you're going to set up a special committee for that. Um, and it will be comp comprised of past board members, current board members who will then become past board members uh, and then others that are going to want to volunteer on it. So for example, we probably got about uh, what, 12 to 15 volunteers right now. Uh, who who serve on committees alongside board members right now, and so you'll you'll it, it'll be a it'll be a good group that's going to be comprised of that. So you'll have folks that you know that were involved you know 10, 15 years ago heavily that will be on the committee because it's going to help inform some of that historical perspective. Because if you think about some of these guys like you know a a, a David Berkelbaugh or a Finney Helmuth or Gary Pesch, some of those folks, um, uh, uh, Kurt Diebel, not only were they past presidents from you know. 10, 11, 12, 13 years ago, leading up until that point, they were on those boards for a very long time too. So you, then you start to get into, well, this is 20, 30 years of perspective. Not only that, in the office, it's really cool because we have Almanac going all the way back to the start of the uh, of the organization. So we've got a lot of historical records. And so it's going to take years to pour through that and kind of pull some of those stories out and start to put that stuff together. Um, and, you know, David Berkerball is a great example because, you know, he, he's been around for almost as long as the organization has, right? You know, the Telford down in San Francisco, same, same type of thing. So they, they've been around for a really, really long time. And so it's really kind of great for them to kind of talk about uh, where where they've come from and where the industry has come from and where everything else. It's 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 a really interesting thing. We've, we've done it a few times where we've looked back for not really retrospectives, but because we wanted information. For example, cancellation of the trade show. I had to go do research if we'd ever canceled again. So I was looking back. The only time I could think of that we would have canceled was back in World War II. And so I went back and I was looking all throughout, you know, you know, 41, 42, 43, if there was any time that we skipped or anything like that. Yeah, even the Great Depression, which, I mean, we were founded in 1933, but we still held shows even as we were going through those 30s and everything. So 
uh, it was really fun to kind of take you get those perspectives. And what's interesting is that, you know, the old adage of the more that things change, the more they stay the same. What were they talking about? I mean, even though a lot of it was cigarettes, but it, it was, you know, taxes and government and things like that. And so taxes and, and governments has is, is always been an issue for, for the tobacco industry going all the way back to the founding of the organization. I didn't know if in 1933 they were bitching about doing a trade show in Vegas in, in July or not. <laughs> so, uh, it was in New York City. It was in New York well, there's a thought. Oh, yeah, that's right. They hate smoking. Never mind. Um, <laughs> they hate fun. <laughs> they hate fun. I say that. I say that as I'm going there this week. Um, Jay, you know, um, you know, you've had the opportunity to serve on the board for a couple years now. Um, and but what's uh, have you had any uh, opportunities to serve on any of like not necessarily an anniversary committee, but maybe like uh, any of these subs and subcommittees or committees that Scott was talking about. Uh, yeah, I've been on the uh, trade show committee and the content committee. Um, I guess we're all part of the advocacy committee. Uh, and that's really where a lot of the work gets done. I mean, generally, I would say that uh, an idea gets comes up in with the board. Then the committee will work on it. And then they'll work out, flush out the details, and then we'll present it back to the board and a format, and then the board decides whether they go with the idea or not. And I think that's where a lot of the great thinking happens in the organization. And that that's the Chewy Carmel Center, I think, a lot of things that happen. Well, I think that's a great seg segue, Jay, to the point of what we're talking about tonight. Like, so again, normally, you know, we would have been talking about like, hey, the trade show is just in July. We're about halfway, we're about halfway to, you know, the next year's trade show, a little bit less. You know, what's, you know, what's, what things coming around, but no, this year there's a faster turnaround. I mean, we're going to have a trade show again in March and um, we're also moving locations for the first time. in I guess what it's a four years now, three years for four years, five, uh, five years. Oh, wow. It's been that long. Okay. So five years, five um, years, four shows. Yeah. Five years, four shows. So good. So a lot of moving parts, you know, so, this this idea gets proposed everything jay like what how did how did the decision or move like how did it flow through the committee to actually i mean we know all the background we know about the the poll the survey and everything like that but how did it actually funnel through the committee process well it, it's a long process we sort of discuss places we'd like to do a trade show and then uh lisa cox uh and scott they send out rfps and then we get the information back. And then as we get closer and closer to uh, deciding uh, three or four possible locations, then we talk about silly stuff like, what is a gallon of coffee cost, which you'd be shocked. Uh, what is the, the labor for plugging in a coffee pot cost? What does, what are the room blocks, those types of things. And then uh, eventually we get to a point where we, we feel like we have a, a viable option We'll recommend it to the board and then the board will say, okay, let's go look. And then usually we put, uh, I think like the last time Scott Pierce went on an airplane with Greg Zimmerman, our president, maybe one other person, and they look at the site and they get the information they need and then they present it to the board. But a lot of those details are worked out in the committee. So, okay. So from a personal standpoint, I'm interested to hear both your perspectives. So here's a chance for our first duel tonight. Okay. Okay, the decision notwithstanding, the decision was to move the trade show. So the time of year, we're going to still keep it in Vegas. Obviously, we're changing venues, but we're moving it to the spring, right? What, what were, what were your some of your 
what was some what was like your initial response to the final decision and moving forward with it? Uh, for me, I've been a big proponent of that pretty much from the time I started. Um, I love telling this story. Uh, my first day on the job, I flew down to go to TAA and I get on the shuttle bus to go to the uh, hotel or the, the resort. And I get on there and uh, Christian Aurora, Tom Mazuka, and Alan Rubin are on that shuttle with me. So it's the first time I've met any of them. I introduce myself, say who I am. Christian still to this day doesn't let me forget that I tripped over myself and didn't say IPCPR correctly. Um, and so who knows, maybe that was the impetus for me PCN. being adamant. We changed the, the name. Yeah, exactly. I brought, I told him, I asked him the question in my interview. So it was already on my mind anyway about changing the name. But um, first thing Alan Rubin said to me was, you know, change the dates of the trade show. And uh, I said, okay. I said, great. I'm brand new. Let me know why. So for, you know, the next hour or so that it took on that shuttle with Christian and with, with uh, Alan and Tom, um, they gave me a lot of interesting perspective from the manufacturer's point of view. Um, at the time, right before I got on, they, they had just signed a five-year contract with the Venetian. Um, Cause obviously with the Venetian cut the contract from 2016. So 2017 and 18 had to be in the convention center. And a lot of people, because it was so abrupt, there was a lot of feedback. People didn't like being spread out. They liked the being close together at the Venetian and, and all these other things. And so, um, the, the 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 contracts held some some challenges, um, and, and you know fortunately we were able to work through those. They were Venetian was very challenging when it came to COVID and some of the cancellations and things like that. They did not make my life easy. Um, but uh, at that time, as we kind of continued to do surveys, the biggest thing that really we kind of looked at. And I think why it made the most sense, and that's why, you know, we had a lot of manufacturer feedback on this, is um, it, it's kicking off the selling season. And it made a lot more sense in terms of them being able to plan and, and you know, turn inventory, uh, retailers getting products, the majority of the of the country hitting that, that busy season. I understand that there's some places where seasonality is a little bit different and busier in, in, in March, for example, than it is in July. Uh, but for the vast majority of the country – the summer months are the busiest time, you know, as soon as that Memorial day holiday kicks off, that's when the selling season really is in, is in full force. And so uh, manufacturers had always kind of had a pin in, in that, you know, end of Q1, you know, Q1, maybe Q2 timeframe where they really wanted to, to, to be. Uh, so it, it was, it was a multi-year discussion because we knew the contracts were coming to an end. Um, obviously there were the whole host of issues surrounding it. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just a, can we pick up a pin and put it on this calendar date? There were a lot of issues that we had to factor through. Not the least of which is, is there coming out of COVID? One of the things people probably didn't realize, but coming out of COVID with all the cancellations, all of these other trade shows and conventions all moved to the future. So stuff in 23 and 24 and 25 has been booked for a long time. And so um, when you're in and, and, and we're going into the busy season now where, where a lot of conventions want to be. So trying to find space and everything else was 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 part of that. Like Jay talked about the reality of the situation is just there's probably two or three places in the entire country where we can hold this trade show, given the size of our footprint and the fact that it's smoking. Um, and so that's just kind of the realities. And so we've got a couple of places that really like working with this and a couple of venues now that really like working with this and. So that's just kind of the way that it, it came through. So I, for one, was you know glad that we kind of got to this point. Where we were able to work it out. I think everybody understood it was the right thing to do. It was just how do we put all the Lincoln logs together to, to create the house? Jay, what about you? 
I, I think that one of the reasons that the board is primarily composed of retailers is we look at what affects our business. And doing it around July 4th was always inconvenient. It was always hot. Whether you were in Orlando or New Orleans or Las Vegas, it just didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and also, you weren't getting a lot of the product launches. Like right now, I'm getting inundated with all kinds of shipments coming in from the trade show. And the reality is, although Christmas time is a good time of year, January and February historically are slowest months. And I would imagine in places where it's cold, it's even slower. So if you have an earlier trade show, it, it, it extends the selling season once you get onto the new uh, circuit. Also, you know, let's say that you have a shop in Mackinac Island in Michigan, or you're in Montana, or you're in Maine. You're selling a lot of cigars in July. That's a hard time to get away, particularly if it's a mom and pop shop. You've got to maybe have your father-in-law cover for you or bring in somebody that is temporary. Uh, so it's I think it's more difficult. Being in Texas, it's not that big of a deal because, yeah, July is a good month, but we also have good months in April and in May and June. So I think that for a lot of the country, uh, having a trade show in the middle of the summer is inconvenient. Um, and it's just a lot of retailers will go. I mean, I think there's always that core group that you could make a trade show in Anchorage, Alaska in January. And there's that core group of people that are always going to go. But there are a lot of other retailers who just can't make it if it's not convenient. And I think based upon some of our prior experiences, you know, sweating outside in the, uh, the driveway there in Orlando or dealing with some of the issues in New Orleans or in Las Vegas, it, just having it when it's cooler out, it make it easier to do it. And having it earlier in the, in the season, I think, makes a lot of sense. I, I know you disagree with me on this point. I swear to God, this is probably going to be the last time I bring this up. Um, but I'm interested to get both your perspectives on this. Jay, I know you disagree with me. And Mike Mike Taus is actually in the chat right now. He says it's going to help retailers possibly sell even more throughout the year. And I'm not here to disagree or agree with that. Here's my concern. And and I think, Jay, this is where you and I, I've, I've wanted to bring you on because I wanted to have this discussion with you. You're I think you're an outlier because I think you're you're an outstanding retailer. And not that most retailers aren't outstanding, but they look at they look at they look at their inventory a lot differently than you do. Um, so here's my concern, Scott, I'd love for you to chime in too. Here's my theory. Okay. About, about what could be problematic for retailers with having a show in the spring. Okay. The cigar world shuts down in December for the holiday, right? They shut factories down for an entire month. That's, that's what they do. That's what they've always done. It's the way I think. In addition to that, most inventory, most retailers at the end of the year, what do they want to do? They, they, I mean, first of all, it's the holiday season, so they're selling the shit out of inventory, which is great. But they want to push as much inventory out the door because in particular states, Texas being one of them, they have to pay inventory tax at the end of the year. So if they can lower that number business-wise, it's a great decision, right? So if we can get as much inventory out the door as possible, we pay less inventory tax on what we have left. Makes the most sense. Okay, so if you drain the shelves... You've got nothing left in back stock. You go to replenish. You go to reorder. Factories are shut down. Companies are shut down. There's nothing to reorder. Right? So now I've been in situations where I've been in retailers. And they don't have any stock on the shelves till the end of January, early part of February, mid-March. And that's because that's when they start to spend money again. And again, those months historically, especially here, again, my experience is basically te Texas, is it's pretty low. 
right? Um, and so they're, you know, the cash flow that's coming in is pretty low. So my concern, just to get to the point here, sorry, my concern is if with the trade show in the spring, that's where they're going to spend big, right? Is if they hold off to spend that big money even more at the trade show in the spring, does that mean the end consumer, hi, that's me, I'm greedy. The end consumer is going to suffer because now the shelves are going to be emptier or sparsely more po sparsely populated less up until that point. Jay, you disagreed with me. I know this on the fact. So, well, I mean, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, inventory tax doesn't move me because at least the way it works in Texas is January thirty first. I owe a tax based upon all personal property. Computers, TVs, furniture, inventory, um, but it's a year delayed. So I pay tax on, I'll pay tax on January 31st, 2024 for everything I had at December 31st, 2022. So it's a year delayed. Um, and as a retailer, you know, when I was a young retailer, oh yeah, let's blow it all out. Well, something I learned a long time ago is why am I going to sell something for 40% off? When I have to buy it two or three months later, it'd be better just to sell it for 20% off because then I'm just cheating myself out of margins. Um, but I, I think the, the interesting thing about the show uh, is it, it doesn't matter when the show is. In, in 12 months, I'm going to sell X number of cigars from Perdomo and from Oliva and from Fuente. And I know Paul Costo is on the thing and he wants a big order. But whether I buy... $10,000 worth of Oliva in December or not doesn't really matter because over the year, I'm going to sell approximately the same amount of Oliva. Now, that can change a little bit uh, with if someone comes out with a very exciting new release of the show. But at the end of the end of the day, you're going to sell a certain number of cigars in the year, whether the trade show is in January or it's in October. Uh, the issue, as from an organizational standpoint, like I said earlier, is you want to get as many retailers to the trade show, not necessarily just to buy product, but to spend time talking to the retailers. Some of the greatest things, lessons I've learned, and I'm sure you would agree with this there, is advice from a manufacturer or another retailer that does something different that has encountered similar situations. I have employees and I have a number of, of colleagues here in town who own cigar shops. But they may not have the same issues that I have. But I, if I meet a retailer at the trade show from Florida or Connecticut or Hawaii, they may be running into similar issues. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I was interested in picking up a particular cigar brand. But I was a little nervous because I didn't really know the manufacturer. And I ran into Ronnie, who owns a Secreto, uh, up in Detroit. And I asked him about the brand because I know that he had carried it. He gave me invaluable advice. Uh, as to the pros and cons of whether or not I should carry that brand. I could not have received that information that I frankly think helped my business if I hadn't bumped into him at the Dunbar booth. And that is one of the many advantages of going to the trade show. So from my perspective, it doesn't matter when the trade show is, I'm still going to buy the same number of cigars. But I want to have as many people at the trade show like Ronnie, who are good retailers, or Abe, you know, I remember trying to make the decision whether I was going to bring United Cigars in, which is now my fourth best-selling brand. And I remember I was at Club Dorsey, which is now closed, 
and I was with Abe and his wife, and I was with um, Christina and her manager from uh, Just For Him and me and my brother. And I was talking to Abe about Edebe and Byron and how these would do. Because obviously, John Garof, I mean, Dave Garofalo was like, yeah, bring it in. But Abe gave me a very unique perspective in 10 minutes that helped me make a decision to bring that brand in. And if I had not been at the trade show sharing a cigar with Abe, I would not have had that advice and may have made a different decision. And to me, that's the value of the trade show. So as many people as we can get to the trade show, the better. And some of the very best retailers in this country are on the East Coast. And a lot of people from the East Coast don't want to go to a trade show in July. So that is why I support it. Now, is it a pain in the butt? Yes. I have a ministry conference in Indianapolis two weeks after the trade show. I'm going to Pro Cigar, which is a month before. It's close to TPE. There's a lot of reasons why the first quarter is a pain in the butt. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to sell the same amount of cigars, but I need to get to the trade show because of the networking and the knowledge base and the things that I can learn from people. Just every trade show, there's seven or eight different conversations that change my business for the better. Either I decide I need to do something or do something different or just not do something. So to me, whatever is going to bring as many people to the trade show, manufacturers and retailers, to me, that's why changing the date was important. Even though it may be inconvenient, that's sort of my my thoughts. And I don't know what Pearson's thoughts are on it, but that's my thoughts on it as a retailer. Scott, what were some of these surveys and polls telling you? And based on, I mean, obviously there was a lot of overwhelming, you know, push to this time of year. But was this ever brought up or did you ever hear about this? Or am I just the crazy idiot that's screaming from the cheap seats here? Uh, I wouldn't call you a crazy idiot. I think it's a, it's an insightful question. Um, there weren't really any particular the overwhelming uh, push retailers. It was interesting. I mean, there were, you could, there were some definite trends within the data that showed retailers wanted it earlier in the year. Um, between February and April was when they, they, the majority wanted it. Right. Um, the manufacturers overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly wanted it uh q1 q2 time frame um so i think that um you know and, and, I, and we've heard from them they said you know well, look we every single manufacturer i've talked to has been incredibly supportive about the decision to move it uh they just said this first year is going to be a pinch <laughs> and i commiserate with them because i said i know i feel like uh an insane person right now having done this to ourselves of uh, trying to turn this around as quickly as we did but i say you know 2021 was a great practice run for us. We had 92 days to put on a trade show. So I feel like eight months is a lifetime. Uh, um, so I think, I, I think kind of, um, I look at it a little bit different. Uh, this is just my kind of gut, uh, probably maybe a little bit wishful thinking, but based upon conversations that I've heard from, from manufacturers and I've turned around and asked on this question, you know, we, we kind of stopped policing the deals because it just kind of got out of hand and no deals being released and people were doing them and sending them out because the time of year made it almost impossible for manufacturers not to to do deals, right? Right. But kind of what you just talked about, for me, my perspective is they're going to come back organically because why would you be running any deep discounts when retailers aren't in any position or desire to buy anything? It makes no sense. So it makes the most sense. And, and kind of, you know, I was having a conversation with a very, very large retailer. This was long before this was happening. One of the things they talked about, the challenge with the trade show, 
was where it landed within the business cycle. And they said it's very difficult for them to do forecasting. And when they looked at everything, they could not run a business where their business was like this, goes up in the trade show, and then down again. That they need multiple times that this happens. Mm. So moving it to this time of year, you kick off with something very big and very strong. And it allows them time to start getting data on what's moving, what's not moving, where is it moving, and how is it moving, what is you know making these products move. And you have those six months of that selling to, to focus and hone in on uh, what those those are or home in on what those are. So that's kind of I think more to that that side of things. I think that um, while the factory shut down, I don't know if I've heard too many warehouses, particularly in the U.S., that tend to shut down for as long term as as the factories do. So I do think that you know if there are those that do need the products that that do stay busier, um, that that some of the products will kind of start being okay at that point. I do think the business cycle fixes a little bit of that though as they prep for the trade show. I don't know. We'll see. That's just what I've heard. Um, I mean, I don't have any sort of you know crystal ball or, or magic seer stone as far as that's concerned, but uh, just the conversations I've had with at this point probably close to eighty manufacturers and several hundred retailers. Um, that seems to kind of be what the general thought is for those that are kind of looking at that business cycle and how it relates to how they run their businesses and how the businesses and the consumers' demands go. Okay, so obviously this was a decision that was widely supported by obviously by our members of the organization, the manufacturers you mentioned, Scott. Now, okay, so what steals the headlines in the manufacturers' world? Okay, obviously is Juristate's coming back, one of the big four, Altidus, uh you know, came back in a smaller footprint uh, this past summer, uh, STG in the form of, of, uh, um, forged, just, forged. Why did I just bring for it? Thank you. Forged this past trade show as well. Um, I mean, other than those three, and first of all, have those three, uh, I know that Drew Estate has, but have the other two committed to uh, a, a, a bigger footprint for this upcoming trade show in March? Yeah, so Forge, what they're doing is it's it's General Cigar this year. Um, so what they've told us is that it's Forged and then General, then Forged, then General. So they're gonna kind of do every other just to, as they're kind of coming back in. Um, and so uh, I think theirs is about the same size as it was last year. Altidus is slightly larger than it was last year, uh, with a little bit more. Um, and then Drew Estate is is not as big as they used to be, but they're pretty close. Um, you know, and with the amount of companies that were coming in, I mean, we were, we were damn close to selling out last year. Um, we almost sold out. We, we really had no more space and we had uh, over a hundred people in the queue waiting to book booths and we're being down our door. And so we had to, we had to get an additional haul. So we added an additional haul, um, for the show next year. So, um, and we're back and things are kind of moving. So there's a, it's a much larger footprint. Um, so it's, um, it's going to be a really there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of interesting things uh, and fun and exciting things that are going to be coming out here over the next several weeks um, as some things get solidified and, and everything else with what some manufacturers are doing, what we're doing, and some of these other things. So it's going to be a really interesting show. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, and again, um, Jay, I want to flip it back to you here. What what were your initial thought? And uh, first of all, is the BCA Pavilion coming back? Sure is. Is that confirmed? Okay. Yep. Jay, this is from two different perspectives, so I'm asking you to kind of look at it from two different lenses here as a retailer and member of, of, of PCA, and then also as a board member. How, how What were your thoughts on the BCA Pavilion? Do you think it had accomplished what it was sought out to? Do you think it was a positive for the overall trade show? Just your general thoughts from both perspectives, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, on a visceral level, I don't think I've ever seen Gabby Caffey so happy. 
And I know a lot of the people that uh, had boots in the uh, pavilion, uh, people, you know, small micro brands that I've carried here and there. And every single one of them, they were positive. They were excited. Uh, they just were gushing. Uh, the only concern that I have, and this is more Scott's bailiwick than mine, is, you know, can we expand the BCA pavilion more in the future? Because there's a lot of people that are interested. And I think a lot of people that had not previously thought it was possible for them to exhibit at PCA now know it's possible. And I spoke to a lot of cigars with a lot of those people. And like I said, it was all positive. So I think the BCA Pavilion was a, a tremendous move. And I give credit to Scott and his staff and uh, credit to Gabby for putting that together. And, you know, we want as many people uh, to be at the trade show as possible from a manufacturer's perspective so that retailers have choices. So I think it was a home run. Okay. Um, to, here, here's my particular comment about it. I don't, I don't have a problem with the, the BCA pavilion or anything. It did seem like it was a little spaced out. It seemed like a, a little, not, I don't want to say waste, but it just seemed like there's a lot of space of real available real estate to, 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 to Jay's point, Scott, does that is that something that can be obviously corrected with time? You know, like Jay was talking about, people who weren't weren't didn't think they could exhibit now can have a space and an opportunity. I mean, are we going to see a little bit more packed of a BCA pavilion, or um, is it going to be really spaced out like it was before? Because that was my impression of it. Um, I'm nothing about the con, you know, nothing poor or anything to say about the people who were part of it. And it seemed like an overwhelming positive vibe that I got from it, but just it seemed very, very sparsely populated to me. I think it kind of depends on well, – I think there's a couple of things. I, I keep reiterating this with folks. The size of the footprint that we have for the amount of people, we could probably triple the amount of attendees and would still feel empty. Um, like I come from a trade show world. I've done this my entire career. I've been to uh, exhibit halls that were half the size of ours, and the attendance was like triple what ours was. And I still didn't feel like I was at a mosh pit, right? Um, and I think that people, because of the size of the booths and, and I mean, I get screamed at by some very, very prominent people if, when, when, you know, the entrances to their booths aren't, you know, as spacious as we need them to be. And so we have big aisles for people and a lot of other things. And so it's a very open floor plan to begin with in that regard. Right. The second part of that is, is that what we plan for when we're looking at doing this pavilion, the last thing we want is that if we do have, like I say, a mad dash on like a Monday afternoon for the BCA pavilion, the last thing that we want for our customers is to not have any room for them to be able to go sit down with customers. We don't want people to feel like they're not welcome in there because there's too many people in there. So we just purpose for it to be open and welcoming so that those companies had the space to be able to sit and meet with people and in comfortable you know areas because the last thing you want is if i'm if i'm a member of bca in a company the last thing i want is to be sitting in there and, and having their friends but they're also competitors the last thing i want is another company listening to my conversations with a retailer or being so close that it, that that then their customers are hearing what i'm discussing too as far as sales are concerned or things like that right so we wanted to provide enough space that they could do all that comfortably um and so so it's not like it's, you know, uh, we, we kind of have to get out of that. I think the idea of thinking, well, shit, this is when the iPhone is getting released. And if there's not a line out the door and if it's not jam-packed like it's a Christmas holiday sale, then it's not being visited. That's that's not what the point is for these booths. These booths are designed for people to sit down in comfortable environments to discuss business and discuss sales and orders and plan out the year, right? 
So we got to make sure that that is a space for BCA to do that. And I think that it was accomplished very well. And I do think that um, just from the feedback we got from those companies, they were very happy with the traffic and the opportunities they had with the retailers and the retailers that we talked to that visited the the companies that were in there were incredibly happy to, to see them and to start being able to do just some business with some of the smaller boutique uh, brands that are out there. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, you know, what was the feedback? I mean, did you guys both receive feedback from uh, from BCA members that were part of the pavilion? Did they they feel? Did, I mean, were they were they were they satisfied with the amount of traffic that they saw? Look, they were so satisfied that they were coming into the uh, trade show office wanting to get their pavilion set up before the end of the the day on that <laughs> before the trade show ended. They wanted to ensure that they had a pavilion space again. Because uh, I think that they heard that space was going fast, right? And so uh, because of that, then um, you know they came in. So they were they were very satisfied. That's fantastic, Jay. Did yeah. you, from retail perspective, did you uh, did you? Because um, I know in years past you've talked about this, like the the the, the choices that you've made, you know, of bringing in new brands or even rebringing in brands that may not have that may have been fallen by the wayside and everything. You've got a limited amount of real estate. We talk about this. Did you, uh, did, did any of them stand out to you that you wanted to take a chance on or did, you know, what, uh, what went into that decision, uh, either yes or no, depending on what you say. You mean with regard to the companies in the BCA pavilion? Correct. Yes, sir. Uh, well, like I said, we're, we've always been an early adopter. So I had probably carried 70 to 80% of those brands in the past. So I was, probably more familiar with a lot of those brands than most people. Um, I think for brands I was thinking about maybe bringing back in, we had conversations off the trade show floor, um, but it was, like I said, it was great to have them there. And uh, I know they were very happy and trust me, you get a lot of negative conversations. People get drinks in them. And there were some small and medium sized companies where, I could tell by the end of the trade show that maybe their sales weren't where they wanted to be. I did not hear anything like that from any of the BCA people. They were all thrilled. And there's a couple that I talked to at the BCA Pavilion last year at the trade show that I did not place orders with that I probably will place orders with this year. So from my perspective, uh, I was it helped me deepen my relationships with people. And usually when I'm going to bring in a brand, it, it isn't you know right away. It, you know, it, there's a, there's a thinking process of when can I do this? When can I do it right? So from my perspective as a retailer, I was very pleased with it. Nice. Shifting gears here, just wanted to bring up uh, the, uh, and I'm interested to get both y'all's perspectives on this. Um, one uh, is, the, is the, the, and the topic I'm going to bring up is the State Association Grant Program. So Scott, if you could give us a little 30,000 foot view of what this, what this entails and, uh, I know you're. Not, I know you're part of it, obviously, as the director of PCA. But it's not necessarily your your brainchild or under your direct purview. But if you could kind of give us a thirty thousand foot view of what that entails. Sure. Um, you know, it, this is one of those. Uh, I might regret saying this, but I mean, everything happens is under my purview. So <laughs> that's why I guess right. I get the phone calls from people, right? right. Um, yeah, no. So this is uh, this was something that that uh, Josh and I worked on, and we were discussing this. So when we're we consistently, you know, when we looked at it, and I wanted to start this Vision Fifty a couple of years ago, um, th this is just the next step in that. 
So you look back over the years and we're talking about state advocacy and you have to talk about the ways in which we can be most effective in state advocacy and in, in state battles, uh, not only progressing positive legislation, but fighting back and, and deepening relationships. We are ultimately the best at what we can do when we have consistent long-term relationships with state legislatures that are dialed into the local issues with the retailers and then with retailers dialed into the local issues with those state representatives. Um, Case in point, Idaho tax cap doesn't get passed without Josh Everts being a champion there as a local retailer, um, working with the senator to get elected and so on and so forth, right? So what this is, is that it's, it's basically saying, okay, look, the more successful we are as an organization, that's how much more we can put back into doing these things. We know that in order for us to be the most effective lobbying machine possible, we need boots on the ground in these states, or we need specific state association activations. So, you know, through, you know, fiscal management and through some of these other things and working smarter, not, you know, and not, not necessarily spending harder, um, then we've been able to manage the budget to a point where we can say, okay, We'll be able to pay off, you know, some debt, reduce some liabilities, and get back to a solid foundation here. We're we're progressing, we're growing now, we're doing some of these other things. So now, what's the next step for us? Well, the next step for us is to start really kind of outfitting this army even more, and and so, but we also have learned some lessons from the past where we don't just write checks and kind of be done with it, or just kind of you know be at arm's length with how we're doing this. Uh, we work very hard to make sure that we're you know, doing things the right way. And so we know that we have to have a state mechanism, an apparatus that's going to be able to match what we're doing in, in a certain regard. At the same time, we also know that by and large, most of these state associations are not going to have, I don't think any of them do, quite honestly, they don't have full-time staff. So not only can we say, oh, hey, here's a whole bunch of administrative stuff that we can do for you, whether it's letter writing, whether it's website stuff, whether it's getting you business cards or letterhead or phone calls, whatever the case may be, typing up reports, doing bullet points, submitting testimonies, all of that stuff we can take care of and we do. Um, and that's why Glenn Loop, obviously, is so fantastic at his job. That's what he does. And we've got some folks that can help support him in that regard. The flip side of that is, is what we can do is we cannot clone Glenn to have him in 50 states. Um, right. But having retailers that have relationships with lobbyists and with state representatives, those lobbyists are going to cost money, right? And so there's a way for us to say, okay, we have an apparatus that's in place. We'll work in conjunction with that. We have goals and outcomes that we want to accomplish because of this so that we know, for example, California could probably ask us for $10 million. And could we spend $10 million in California? Absolutely. Is it going to accomplish anything? No, it's going to accomplish nothing. I got a retailer in California once yelling at me because we didn't fight against this tax increase. Well, it's a, it's an increase that's written into the actual code that you can't – you would have to set up a referendum that would cost millions of dollars to get done, and that referendum would never even pass to begin with because it's just a straight tobacco. So it's it's so we're not going to spend money on that, right? But if there are things that we're close to, like whether it's you know this Georgia tax cap, then, then yeah, we're going to put something together for that. Right. If there's there something that we're going to do in another state that's going to put a tax cap, get a cigar bar bill, or is there something that's coming down that's, you know, there's a flavor ban that's coming out that would be incredibly onerous and take, you know, 80% of the products off the shelf because people have described this thing as having co- notes of cocoa and cinnamon and cedar and, and nuts. Well, that's got to come off the shelf because of the way that this flavor ban language is or preemption, right? Uh, putting local authority out there. This is a big one, right? So there's all of these things that that go on that we want to be able to to attack, and so it's just a way, first step for us to be able to invest in doing that. Um, but again, 
we can't just simply write blank checks and not have outcomes and not have an apparatus around that. So this is a way for us to accomplish all of that. And also, uh, I, I, you know, just from past experience in doing this in other industries, uh, an active state association that has a very specific role with strong support from a national organization, and they work, work hand in hand, and then monies are, are, are shared and or spent, the, sh the expenses are shared. That's the most effective way for us to be local everywhere. And we have to be local everywhere if we're going to, in fact, accomplish what we need to accomplish for the industry. We've been very good so far in getting to this point. We need to get now two, three, four steps down the road because our opposition continues to try to go and have a war of attrition against us and give us death by a thousand paper cuts. So that's kind of what this is for. It's probably a little bit lower than the 30,000 foot level, but that's that's really the ultimate goal for this. And the goal is, is that this will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow to where you know every year we've got 25, 30 different state lobbyists that are our army that they're out there because um, we have issues. Right now we're looking at you know potentially 17 states where we have to have activations. Um, so the bank may not be able to fund all of them, but we're going to be active in probably 17 to 20 states come January 1st. Is Texas one of them? Um, no. Not not as far as anything that's pressing in terms of uh, dangerous legislation at this point. Not not that reaches that level. Mm -hmm. There are some things that percolate all, all the time. We have to understand we, we monitor 10, 000, tens of thousands of bills every year, both federally and state levels, right? So they always come out, and so things can percolate. So you might see something that pops up. It doesn't mean it's got, you know, to coin a phrase from um, – uh, playing strains and automobiles. Some of these bills, you have a better chance of playing pickup sticks with your butt cheeks than this bill ever has of going anywhere, right? So we know that, and we and that's why having the relations with the state um, legislatures and understanding their makeups of what they are to understand. Look, this is one Democrat out of you know forty nine that that uh, Republicans. This is not going to go anywhere, right? Uh, on a smoking ban, for example. So right. So. Jay, this has always been an interesting because I've <clears throat> I've known of other states that have really strong state associations. In Texas, again, I'm biased. You're one of them. But Texas has some of the finest retailers in the country. But yet I haven't really seen a, a very strong effort for a, you know, or core effort to making a strong state association. With some of these grants that 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 the that the organization is now going to be putting together for us, is there there's a is there a chance? Do you think? And I'm not suggesting that you head it. You know, I'm not trying to put that stuff to your plate here, Jay. But do you think that you know Texas could take advantage of this and actually get a you know get some of the again to my point some of the strongest retailers in the country to form a you know a really strong army against legislation like this. Well, uh, first of all, to repeat what Scott said, you know, as uh, Palpatine said, I am the Senate. Um, everything that's PCA is, is Scott. A lot of the vision is Scott. And that's the way it should be. Uh, we're the board. We're here to help carry out his visions. Um, I think associations fall into three different categories. There are very active associations like uh, Virginia and uh, New York. They have a lot of participation. They're very, very involved. Uh, then there are states where there is no association. And then there are associations like Texas. And I am not happy to announce that I am the treasurer of the TXCMA. And we might have eight members, which is just disgusting. 
Uh, a part of it is there's an apathy in Texas, and this is common in a lot of mom and pop businesses, particularly in the cigar industry. Oh, everything's perfect in Texas. We have a 1.1 uh, cent tax, except for people ignoring that on, on pipe tobacco, it's much higher. So our biggest problem in Texas is getting members, people to join. Uh, there are very, very uh, few retailers that are members to the organization. And that that's really what our focus is on. Um, Texas is actually, I, I think, really where they can provide help is if we need help on a national level on a bill to work with our representatives here in Texas. Um, I think that the purpose of the, the money for the PCA is to help where help is needed. Right now, there is no help needed in Texas. But let's say, for example, down the road, there is a, a push to maybe change the OTP tax to 20%. And the TXCMA, I would hope at that point, would be larger and more robust. And maybe we need to hire somebody to help us uh, work on a particular bill or whatever. And that's where you can apply. You can go to the PCA and you can ask for monies. But at this point, Texas is not active enough where I don't, and there's not enough issues right now where I don't think that that's a need. Uh, there are other states where that are a lot more active. So, and I, I'm embarrassed to say as a board member of the TXCMA, uh, we are woefully behind from where we need to be. So I'm not sure that's not what you want, want to hear. Um, but I'm glad to report that uh, uh, Bob and Mike Peacock, uh, they are members. And the Finks are members. And uh, Paul Carroll is a member. And there's a couple others. And that's about it for the entire state of Texas, which is just, it's a tragedy. Uh, but I, yeah. I think it, it states the problem that we have as an industry. We are dealing with a very sophisticated, well-funded enemy known as the FDA. And a lot of retailers just are very laissez-faire and let things happen to them. And one of the things that's been brilliant under the PCA is getting retailers more involved. There are things that are afoot to have certification and um, awards to stores that are doing things right. And uh, but once again, we, we need to work with the apathy here in Texas. Yeah, but surely and, and I'm, I, I'm one of the board members, so. Right. And I'm not trying to and I and I know the state of the the state association here in Jay. So like I was a kind of I mean, I was expecting, a, a you know, I was expecting an answer similar to one you gave just because I know there are a few. More. And th like I said, I, I think we have some of the finest retailers in the country. And it's it's shocking to me. But certainly, I mean, not giving Texas the pass here. And not trying to pass the buck, but Scott, I mean, we're seeing, we're, I mean, the apathy that Jay's describing in Texas, I mean, that's, that's, it's pretty prevalent probably across most, most of the country, right? With this, with the few, ex, few exemptions of like Virginia, as he mentioned, New York and a couple of others that are pretty strong. I mean, all right, will this, this, this program, this grant program, do you think it'll help improve that apathy? Or might yeah, that's another realistic. No, I think that uh, it will look, I mean, uh, idealism stems from 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 a place of 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 uh, i think an understanding the uh, of where things need to go right and in, in terms of the 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 good outweighing the the um what is that the what is it that the don't let perfect be the enemy of of good right in terms of that and so i think that yeah you are being a little idealistic in that sense but one of the points here is that without us putting skin in the game we can't leave state associations to just do this. I mean, it's very difficult to have volunteers run something. That's why I have a job, uh, you know, because to have a bunch of people who run businesses 
to try to have to volunteer to do what I do on a daily basis really is just it's it's not going to get accomplished. Um, not that I'm sitting here patting myself on the back, but what PCA has been able to do over the past three years now is not wouldn't happen without a full time staff doing things right. Um, and so state associations don't have that. So in this instance, it's a way for us to say, okay, we do need a minimal amount of 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 infrastructure. And the reason why we need a minimal amount of infrastructure is because we know that's what's needed in order to move the needle at a state, uh, you know, advocacy level. You can't have disparate people. You can't, and because, for example, right, and this is some challenges that we've had internally as, as an industry, but I can't have one retailer going to a state legislature, having conversations with a particular state representative, and then something gets progressing along, and then all of a sudden another retailer or manufacturer or somebody else comes along and was like, no, 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 that's not really right. We're going to, we want to do it this way. That, that will kill any sort of positive momentum that will kill any relationship that a legislature has with this community and with this industry. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there's no legislature that's going to put their career on the line for tobacco. It's just not going to happen. And so if we don't have our own shit together, they're not going to step, they're not going to wade into it. So we need to have the apparatus in place because what we do on a full-time basis is do this all the time, right? We can help lead, we can help guide, we can help understand and strategize and have the proper strategy in place. We can come with funding, but we need to have that apparatus in place in order for it to do that. And in order for us to incentivize the state associations to actually do this, is by us being able to say, yes, we've got money that we can go ahead and put towards these things that will benefit. But we can't just – because the other part of it is is this. If I've got state A that's over here that's requesting $20,000 and state B over here is requesting $20,000 and state A just wants twenty grand because they just want to pay a lobbyist because they want to have a lobbyist. But state B has an action plan. They have an outcome and they've got four legislatures that are ready to sponsor this bill and they – Got, we've got a plan of action, and we're going to go ahead and liaise with and help manage their state lobbyist to implement our strategy. That's where we're going to spend that $20,000 because the state A is basically just asking to waste the money, and state B has got an action plan where something's going to get done. And it's hard to say no to state B in favor of state A when state A has done nothing for it. And that's 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 the whole incentive plan here. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, so the incentive plan is to help also educate and, and also – foster foster a culture of involvement that was my that was my the concern too because i think you painted the picture beautifully scott because my that was my concern was like okay so we've got 50 states all wanting money you know but if you know and again with all respect jane i know you're on the board and everything like that but you yourself said like eight members in the entire state of texas which again i'm look i'm texan and i've worked in retail that's pathetic let's just call it what it is you know, and but you have a you know you have an association like I mean even New Hampshire you know I mean where Garofalo is and everything I know they have a very tight knit group I don't know if they have a formal state association I don't want to speak to to that but I've 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 happened to sit in on the North Carolina state association and I was pretty impressed with the the retailers that sat in on that meeting um, as well um, I mean there's some so really good ones out there some of what you're mentioning right now is you are starting to see that because. You have folks that have been able to participate on the national board, and they take that experience and they're able to translate it down to a state board. Or you have people like Todd Johnson down in North Carolina that understand things from an implicit level because he's a state senator and knows and can help in, in, in regards to that. But I think we don't need – I don't want to say it this way. Let me, let, me, let me try to say it in a way that, that doesn't let people think that they're off the hook. At the end of the day, it doesn't take 
all 3,500 doors of retailers in state associations and all of those people having weekly meetings and taking 10 hours out of their, their weeks in order to do this. That's not what this is about. It's about having an infrastructure in place. And those eight members, if it's only eight members in Texas, that's fine. But if those eight members are dedicated and can give us a few hours every single Q1 when legislative session is in play and can continue to work with us throughout the year and can have consistent relationships with their state legislators, it doesn't take a lot once you get the relationship established. That is going to get us tens of miles ahead of where we are right now. Now, so it, it it will come. There will. I mean, to your point, right? New York's great. New York's got fundraising. They do golf tournaments. They do a lot. They put money in the bank because New York needs it, right? And and that's great. Uh, that's not what every single state needs. And so ultimately, what we what we need is we need leadership teams in these states, but we also need re- every single mom and pop retailer that's out there, and every single national brand retailer that's out there, and in between to understand that when the call comes to engage, you engage because we're asking for a very specific and important reason. And the the onus is on the local leadership to have the relationships with all of the retailers, regardless if they're members or not of that state association. For example, when I went down to Texas in, in the spring, Jay knew a bunch of people that we could go and talk to. Some were members, some weren't. But we but Jay knew them. You know, right? Jay's very, very good in terms of understanding the lay of the land. That we need a Jay in every single state that knows all these different just in 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 uh, Missouri, right? Same thing. She knows when there's new members, she knows who they are, who they aren't. We she knows who we can reach out to if we ever needed to go to Missouri for something, right? So there's there's we need those types of folks in all of the states. And we're starting to get there and they're starting to understand that it's not a ton of effort, but we do need a little bit more than a minimum amount of effort on their part and we can carry the rest. Okay, Jay, so we've got, you know, I've got people in my audience who are probably listening to this and be like, Bear, I'm not a retailer. You know, I'm just a simple cigar smoker. And this is, this this sounds great. This sounds fantastic. I want to support cigar rights in my state. What can they do? What can they do with their retailer to get them to join? Again, it doesn't have to be Texas, obviously. Again, we're talking about 50 states here. What, yeah. can, what can they do? What can a consumer do to help this effort? Well, I mean, money and connections always helps. So, you know, anyone can go to cigaraction.org and they can contribute money to the Industry Defense Fund. Uh, you can even go to the TXCMA website and you can join if you're a manufacturer or a customer you just don't have voting rights but you can add money but more importantly i think if if you're a a consumer and you know people let's face it a lot of our consumers are affluent they might know a congressperson they might know someone who's a senator uh just introductions are huge um you know give an example in texas we haven't had a lot of activity but you know skip martin from railroad like hey Anytime that you guys want to go to Austin to, uh, you know, talk to people, uh, you can use our offices as sort of a, a planning place. You know, things like that are huge. So the the ability to use offices, the ability to make connections. But, you know, money is, is a good thing. And I really like, I want to give Scott credit to this. Before Scott, the PCA spent a lot of money on lobbyists, boots on the ground, retainers, making money, doing nothing. And now it's being deployed in a way that's effective. And you only need a few people. It's like, as you know, Bear, 
to get a cigar line moving in the store, we probably just need one or two customers that really like that cigar. And the reason we have a Nevada tax cap today, a lot of that is because of Michael Frey. And he yeah. was the primary person behind that. So sometimes only having one or two retailers that's truly committed, that knows the right people to talk to makes the difference. And I think that's what Scott's hinting at is that, you know, we don't have, this is not Santa Claus like we talked about earlier, but if a state needs, let's say five or $10,000 to cross the finish line and they have a plan, PCA can help them out. Um, for example, this year we had a situation come up in Texas with, uh, there was a bill that was going to outlaw smoking in all college campuses. Now there are some campuses like Texas A&M where it's not allowed. But Texas Tech, for example, where my daughter goes, there are places you can smoke. So, and they were, it was kind of an interesting landmines because of the, you got to be 21 to smoke and some of the other issues in Texas. And Glenn and the PCA was able to help us craft a letter to get to the right people. And I think that was one of the reasons that the bill got killed. And there is an example of where we didn't need a check, but we did need maybe 45 minutes of Glenn's time to help us put together a letter that came from the PCA and us. And I think the CRA was also a signatory as well. Um, and I also, I'll add one thing that uh, Josh and his team have done a great job is using other resources. Uh, a lot of these bills, and Scott can go into the details, it wasn't just the PCA. It was working with the CAA, working with the state association, sometimes working with CRA, they got it done. And that's where Mary Cermak has helped us a lot in some of these other states. And maybe Scott can elaborate on that, but you know, the, it's the right strategic partnerships. And it's it's not just the partnerships with the retailers and the state association, it's the strategic partnerships that the PCA has developed. And I give credit to Joshua Bursky and uh, Scott Pierce for that. Yeah, Thanks, I mean, Mike. it really, yeah, <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's ultimately, um, it's true, right? Again, we're too small to go in divergent directions. And so um, right. the more that we work together, the more successful we've we've been. Um, and we've seen that. Look, three straight years with no state tax increases, right? No federal tax increases. We've had a positive legislation. We have 16 total tax caps now across the country. So it's, it's you know, we, we've turned the tide. And, you know, I mentioned this, you know, that here's how we understand that we're winning is because our opposition is having to change tactics. And they're not used to being on the defensive. And we've been very aggressive and we want to put them on the defensive. Um, and so uh, that's that's the key component to to why this is this is important. Like Jay said, you know, it's it's really just being more organized. And the fact of the matter is, is that once we are able to get this to a point, hopefully in short order, a few years at most, to where we can fund any state that needs it, it, it it's not going to be all 50 states that need it every single time. But knowing that it's there is the important factor. It's the same way of knowing that, you know, if shit hits the fan again and we need another lawsuit, it's knowing that we're building a war chest for that, right? Mm -hmm. It's so you're always putting you're always putting some kind of currency in a bank, whether it's whether it's influence because of relationships, whether it's money, uh, whether it's it's fundraising um, in, in other capacities, or whether it comes down to just good quality storytelling for what it is that we're doing. Uh, we want to consistently be putting currency in those banks. Well, we're going to talk more about funding here in a second, along with uh, some other, um, obviously some other legislation as well. 
but we're going to go ahead and take a quick break for one of our fun segments, which is, and that of course is our presidential trivia segment, which is always brought to you by United Cigars, featuring La Giana Havana, distributors of Jose Dominguez, Bandolero, Garofalo, the Firecracker, and the highly acclaimed Atabay and Byron lines. And of course, now the new Alfonso line as well uh, from Selected Tobacco. Smoke one today and start living united. Now, gentlemen, the PCA was obviously born in 1933. Now, on March 4th of that year, that was the first inaugural address given by FDR. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the only president to be elected to four terms of office, didn't serve his last term to completion, but four four successful elections leading to term limits. So here's the question. The new which New Deal initiative started in 1933, the same year as PCA, and was based out of, at least at the time, one of the U.S. biggest tobacco producing um, areas or regions is what I'm going to say. So here's the kicker. You get it's multiple choice, but I'm only giving you the initials. So let's see if we can uh, let's see if we can figure this out. So A, the AAA. And no, I'll give you a hint. We're not talking about towing cars. B, the CWA, C, TVA, or D, the FCA? I'm going with TVA because is it the Tennessee Valley Authority or something like that? Okay, that's Scott's guess. Snap call oh, by Scott. I, by I would also – no, I, I, that's the only one I could think of was the Tennessee Valley Authority. And uh, I think it dealt with – Electrical co-ops or something. I can't remember, but that would be my guess as well. Okay. All right. Well, let's go through this. I'm going to break this down for you guys. I'm going to give you one chance to change your answers. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, but I'm going to give you a chance to take some answers here. Just to kind of – this snap calls from you guys, even though I gave you the initials. I thought I was going to trip you up. So here we go. So on A, the AAA is actually the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. B, the CWA is the Civil Works Administration. Correct. Correct, Scott. TVA is the Tennessee Valley Authority. So that's you and Jay's initial guess. D, the FCA, Farm Credit Administration. Hmm. So not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm pulling a like a who wants to be a millionaire. If you guys want to change your answer here, it's the, the, the time is now. Um, I don't know. Your hint about important tobacco i'm gonna stick with tennessee jay what about you change or stay old well it's been 100 years since i was in the third grade but i'm pretty certain tv it was 1933 or 1934 so i have to go to the tennessee valley authority also and if i'm wrong i'm wrong no you gentlemen are both right i thought we could uh i thought i could trip you guys up good job yes it is the tennessee valley authority formed in 1933 um there, I mean, we're talking about a lot of a lot of things came down in 1933, and um, some of these organizations that I just mentioned were actually formed in 1933 as well. The FDIC, of course, came out, and that was that was also in the 1933. I thought about that. Yeah. Um, the FCC, Federal Federal Communications Commission, actually came out the following year, 1934. Uh, luckily, they haven't branched into the podcast world, so I can still say fuck whenever I want to, which is nice. Um, but uh, there. I mean, there's a, there, I mean, there were, I mean, so many things were launched in 1933 and 34, the first two years of, of Roosevelt's administration, everything, and, and really kind of, uh, you know, 
we're obviously set to uh to uh you know put this this country back onto the to the uh the pace of recovery so quick opinion because you guys are two very very smart people um you know jay you went to law school too so i'm interested to interested to get your take on this um did the new deal save us from the great depression or was it world war ii or something else your your thoughts and opinions just curious well i have an opinion (laughs) Um, well Ignoring the fact that Lincoln was probably our greatest president because he was a constitutional criminal. Um, I think that one of the. the so that you love that, to throw at me, Jay. Thank like, you so much. <laughs> no, no, no. He, well, you know, one of my, my first boss uh, when I was a lawyer talked about that. He said Lincoln was a constitutional criminal, but he saved the union. To me, the, the greatest um, impact of the Civil War was the destruction of the Constitution. The focus of the Constitution was to give rights to the people in the states descending from Magna Carta. And the federal government was supposed to be limited, but not so limited like it was under the Articles of Confederation. And unfortunately, because of the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in conjunction with Roosevelt's threat to hack the Supreme Court, and because the Supreme Court kept striking these things down, right? and Roosevelt's like, I'm going to add more justices and all of a sudden, they changed their view of the Commerce Clause. And the problem with that, and Jefferson is turning over in his grave, is that the federal government became this huge behemoth that, that for a long time, for example, the speed limit had to be 55 in this country because you weren't going to get federal highway money. And it really gave Congress, if Congress had control of the purse strings, they could do anything they wanted to. And I think that that really helped us become a huge global power. But I think it destroyed a lot of the Jeffersonian uh, focus and the idea of us being a United States of America and changes into a very large federal government. Uh, So I'm not a fan of FDR and I'm not a fan of what happened because of the Civil War, but it needed to happen. Um, But my opinion has always been uh, that despite his best efforts, I think Roosevelt would have gone down as a failure in history, but for the uh, juxtaposition of ramping up to in World War II. What World War II did as far as building our manufacturing base, uh, I think at least 90% likely for why the Great Depression um, was wiped out. And there were a lot of interesting things that Roosevelt did, but I think Roosevelt also saw things as a safety net. For example, the reason that we all think we have this God-given right to retire at 65, because Roosevelt wanted a system of a safety net. Well, the reason 65 comes about is they looked at Otto von Bismarck. You probably know this, Bear. Right. He was looking for a way to award his nobles uh, a way to give them a retirement pay. And he based it upon what Julius Caesar did by giving land estates and annuities for life. And he decided, Bismarck being a very savvy politician, said, I'm going to do it for the oldest 1% of the population. And when Otto von Bismarck did that in the 1880s, that was 65 years old. That's where that number comes from. If you were to make Social Security for the oldest 1% of the nation right now, it would be like 92, 93 years old. But to Roosevelt's credit, Roosevelt wasn't an idiot. And there are notes in the, the bills that passed that when Social Security passed that, well, we're going to need to adjust and push these, these dates back. But I think that what Roosevelt wanted to accomplish 
to be more concerned for our citizens was a good thing. But I think that the federal government has um, gotten very large. And you can see that I definitely align more with Justice Scalia. I think that uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. There, there's, there's an advantage for things being different in Idaho than they are in Texas. And although one thing that I truly dislike right now is actually encouraging to me, look at marijuana. Marijuana is illegal. It's a controlled substance on the federal level. And it's the first time that I can think of since the founding of our country where something started in different states and the states are basically changing federal law. And we're starting to see that with marijuana. And I think that's actually encouraging because there are things that are unique to Maine that are not unique to Oklahoma. And I think marijuana is an example of where the states have been seizing power from the federal government. And I think we need to go back in a balance. But I understand what Roosevelt did. And unlike Hoover, he was willing to, to make changes. And you have to give FDR credit for that, whether you're a critic of him like I am or you think he's a hero. Uh, you have to give him credit for listening to Einstein to start the Manhattan Project. You have to give Roosevelt the credit for going to meet in uh, Tehran with Stalin and with Churchill, knowing that there was an, an assassin coming to kill them. And so you, you have to give FDR credit, even if you're a critic. And I think he was willing to try whatever he could to save the country. And therefore, that's what makes him one of the greatest presidents we ever had. Unfortunately, I think the, the birth of federalism and the destruction of states' rights is not a good thing. That's, that is my longer answer than you wanted. But my short answer is I think World War II is much more responsible for ending the Great Depression than the New Deal was. But the New Deal had some good things in it. I just don't think it's as great as my grandmother thought it was. Man, that's a that's a seriously hot take, Jay. Uh, we'll start with the the. And I know you disagree with ninety five percent of it. No, not not ninety five. I think there. I mean, I think it. I think there's some there's some merit to it. Um, just because again, I'm. I mean, I am. I you and I get down to the the common denominator. I believe that World War II is the saving grace for this country in terms of economics. Right now, uh, Scott's going to come in here and give us his business take with his you know his Fox School of Business from Temple University here in just a second. So. Uh, I want to get. I'm interested to get your take on this too, Scott, just because your perspective is a little bit different. Perhaps, maybe not. But I think the uh, one of the the prevailing theories about, um, you know, you talked, you mentioned the assassination attempt in Tehran. Well, there was another assassination. Attempt. I love fucking telling the story because there was an assassination attempt. Uh, be just as just as FDR was getting inaugurated too in Chicago, where an assassins would be. Um, bullet uh, strayed and hit the mayor of Chicago. His his target was actually FDR. And it was all because of wobbly chair. That chair didn't wobble. He hits FDR instead. John Nance Gardner gets uh, gets inaugurated as the president of the United States. And one of the reasons why FDR brought Nance Gardner onto his ticket was obviously like most presidential tickets, he wanted to bring in oppositional vote on t uh, and support for his candidacy. And Nance Gardner, one of the biggest things that he disagreed with with Roosevelt was the New Deal. So Nance Gardner gets inaugurated. New Deal never happens. Like, are we even in a position in World War II to actually even bounce back economically too? Do we even survive to that point as a country? So that's an interesting would-be history kind of question or anything. But I digress. Scott, 
MBA from the Fox School of uh, Temple University. I, I'm interested to hear. Uh, I'm interested to hear your perspective. Well, my take doesn't really come from business school. Um, comes from a, a lot more of of you know reading uh, mostly. You know, uh, uh, Milton Friedman. You know his his Nobel Prize winning piece when he looks at the the causes of the the Great Depression. Um, uh, the fact of the matter is, the federal government should do a whole hell of a lot less. Um, I liken I liken FDR to uh, uh, the TV show Scrubs. There was a, a particular episode where uh, JD was uh, there was a sick patient. Nobody could figure out what he, what was happening with this patient. He kept getting passed around, and, and doctors trying to do all these different things and run all these different tests. JD forgot about the patient, and uh, they were doing rounds uh, with the interns. And uh, Doctor Kelso was there, and suddenly the patient starts getting better, and he turns to JD and he was like, "Well done, son. What did you do?" And he said, uh, "Nothing." And he looked at everything and he said, "Well, I'll be damned. That was the right call because he was getting passed around. He kept getting sick and getting infections. They were putting different doing the different tests and and pu pumping them full of medications, and they couldn't find out what was wrong with them. And so, well done. Uh, quite frankly, you know, you look at the economics of it. I don't. I, I, I busy bodies when when you're leading a country and you're leading an economy the size of the U.S. is not a good thing. You cannot centrally plan an economy like this. I just that's been proven. I don't care what the Keynesians say. It's, you know, it, Milton Friedman on the way down to Thomas Sowell, who I think is America's greatest living, you know, uh, thinker, economist, philosopher at this point. Anybody who hasn't read Thomas Sowell, I think, is doing themselves a great disservice. Uh, he was a Marxist himself until he started studying things and looking at, you know, labor statistics and laws and started looking at, at, at a number of different things. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I don't think World War II was the reason. I think that we were slow coming out of the Great Depression because of FDR and the Great New Deal. Um, you know, I think that FDR was a, a, a cut from the same cloth and was from the same school of thought as Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, earlier. Um, and and I think that their entire approach uh, was very different. I think Hoover's approach, uh, when you look at it um, – um, and he gets a lot of the blame for for kind of what happens and capitalism and running rampant gets the blame for for the stock market crash when you know again Milton Friedman his entire work that won the Nobel Prize shows exactly with the Federal Reserve and with the other things that didn't did not happen at the time. So uh, I don't believe it was I don't believe it was a Great New Deal. I don't believe it was the it was World War Two. Uh, and, and you know the, the thing about the U.S. is we're so geographically different than the rest of the world in terms of where we're at and the the size and scope of this country there's a lot of of great basically benefits that we have um that a lot of other regions don't in terms of of our abilities but what world war ii did for us at least the the when it ended not getting into it when it ended um, it's, it's always interesting to me because people will look at, oh, look at the 1950s and 60s and we're this great manufacturing you know, country and we don't do manufacturing anymore, which is not technically true either. But the reason was we were the only superpower left in the world that had any capability to do anything. And we had the world that was decimated by war. So who the hell were they going to come to? One of my first jobs was working for the International Road Federation that was built and, and was run from here because American companies were going to Japan and Europe to help rebuild the roads in these countries that have been destroyed by war. So as we go through that, and you can look at the different life cycles of manufacturing countries, right? When you look at 20, well, more than that now, we're getting old, but 40 years ago, who were the manufacturing company and countries? Um, you know, it was places like, you know, Japan and Hong Kong and these others. Well, now they're at our level, right? Now you're looking at Bangladesh and Laos and some of these others that were where they're at and they're growing and what they're doing, right? And that's just the life cycle of, of economics. And I think that had shit just been left alone, 
it's like the guitar string. Like Milton Friedman talks about the guitar string. Right. A recession depresses that guitar string, right? And once you let that go, it will reverberate. And when it reverberates, it's going to reverberate to a greater sound than it's going to be than if you just simply pluck it, right? And what the government tends to do and what the Federal Reserve and everybody else likes to do is they like to tend to not let that string get plucked so that it reverberates back. A recession is a market correcting itself. And instead, you come in and then there's these artificial elements that get created uh, from it, right? Whether mm -hmm. it's quantitative easing or any number of different things, right? The, the way they're playing the games with all the, the interest rates and everything else. So um, I guess that's, again, my long take that, you know, um, I didn't go to law school, so I don't have the great verbosity of, of Jay there. But uh, uh, I don't believe it was either of those that was the, the true means I just that's the economies will do that once they come out of it. I think that we would have come out of that Great Depression. I think Milton Friedman's work shows that uh, a lot sooner and that really didn't have much to do because, I mean, basically, I think it's a false choice because it's a false choice of, well, if, if war really what got us out of it, all you're doing is making a case for us to continuously have wars in order for us to have a, a wars in other places in order for us to have an economy that flourishes in the military military industrial complex that you know Ike warned us about and so that to me it it, it doesn't that, that that doesn't make a lot of sense either and and so because again how are you how are you growing gdp how are you getting influxes of of investments how are you growing different sectors if all you're doing is still taking public money and funneling it into another public endeavor like war and creating war machines um so you know, you're asking people to buy bonds and all that other shit and everything else and stuff too. So um, I think looking at the economics of everything else, I don't think the Great Depression was solved by either FDR being a busybody, and I don't mean to downplay what he was doing. And I, I understand, but I mean, all presidents have have assassination threats all, all, all the time. I, yeah. I don't know. I, I think presidents are overrated. I got to be honest with you. I really do. They're human beings. Most of them oh. are idiots. <laughs> Most of them are idiots. They're all fucking they're just, crazy. They're all fucking they're, crazy. They're they're all just trying to do the, the best they possibly can, but they're idiots. We're all idiots. And and I think to me that's the brilliance of the Constitution. That's the brilliance of this country is to recognize that we're all idiots. So putting an idiot in charge of a bunch of idiots and letting them have more control over our idiot lives is not we've tried that for tens of thousands of years. And the and, and if you want to look at it, you look at the, you know, you, you look at the amount of progress that's been made over the past fifty years, and it's when People have been liberated and, and 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 cultures and economies have been liberalized where more people have more control and more freedoms over their lives. More people are are experiencing more good in their lives because of that. And when you have the reverse of that through wars and through new deals and everything else, then then it inverses. Well, now I have a question for you, Scott, and I'm I assume your answer is going to be no. But do you think that and one thing I do like that Roosevelt did was uh, he helped spearhead the repeal of prohibition. Well, what do you think about the repeal of prohibition and the Marshall Plan? Um, I, I personally think that the Marshall Plan, um, if it didn't help our economy, it certainly prevented World War III. But I want to know your thoughts and Milton Freeman's thoughts on that. What, do you think that helped or hurt or didn't have any impact? Well, as far as the Marshall Plan is concerned, I mean, look, that's a <laughs> it's already midnight here. I mean that that's a, that's another very, very long topic in terms of that's concerned. Yeah. I don't think that that was that was a, not that's not an either or. I do think that yes, there were some very specific strategic benefits that came out of the Marshall Plan. Um, but flipping back, I just want to give a little bit of a of a G whiz collection um, um, trivia here. The last state to vote to repeal prohibition, my great home state of Utah, the Mormons voted to repeal prohibition. <laughs> 
Yes. Prohibitions is fascinating. And and this is uh, – I, I actually I bring this up all the time and bring this back to cigars in our industry. What's really interesting, and this is why it's so important for us to stay vigilant and active, is because when you look at the temperance movement, you started to have various groups start to coalesce around one issue, which was alcohol, right? So you had the women's temperance movement. You had things like the Ku Klux Klan and these others and different nationalists, and they started to – because they would say, oh, these, these dirty immigrants and these groups over here, they're just drunk, so we need to get rid of them. So they aligned with the Christian temperance movement, and, and so it just makes all these weird allies. And that's one thing we have to stay vigilant for is that when you start looking at these anti-groups, right? We have our body parts groups like the American Lung Cancer Society and some of these others, and then you have the tobacco-free kids, and then you have Bloomberg. So you start having these unholy alliances. Well, you, we have to stay prepared for that and we have to create our own holy alliances with people that are all involved and prepared um w- within the the the, the cigar uh, I- industry because if we don't if we're not paying attention if we're not consistently moving if we're not sharks then we're going to get eaten and because they're consistently doing that and they unholy alliances get built up because we the plant is painted as evil right the same way that alcohol was back then so that's the, the the prohibition movement is actually incredibly fascinating to study, and I think there's a lot of lessons there, both on the on the pro pro abortion side, pro abortion pro prohibition side, that are still in play today that we see with these anti groups and the way that they approach it. Yeah, I think that that's dead on, Scott. Uh, I mean, as far as like the alliances thing, I think there's so many opportunities for the for the. P, the B, excuse me, the PCA and other tobacco pro groups to align themselves with more mainstream groups, like specifically in agriculture and farming business. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities there to, to again, to again to ally with them. Um, you know, against some of these other groups that you're talking about. I find uh, I, this was this has been an incredible question. I didn't really expect it to digress this way. I just want to highlight some of the hot takes. Uh, Jay calling out my presidential hero as a constitutional criminal. That was nice. Uh, and Scott saying, uh, uh, comparing the new deal to an episode of Scrubs, which is fantastic as well. So <laughs> this is great. Um, Scott, remind I, I'm going to make a note because next time you come on, I definitely want to have a digression about the Glass Steagall Act. And it's, and, and, uh, and, and <laughs> so I think that'll, uh, that'll be uh, fun. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a lot of fun. That'll be a lot. That, I, I'm, I'm I lived through that working at a bank at the time. Oh man! Yeah, no I, shit, you did. Oh, shit, man, that that's why gonna... I started a cigar shop. I was tired of it. <laughs> so that'll be that'll be some fun. So stay tuned for Scott Pierce's next appearance on Ellis from Artics when we break down the Glass Steagall Act and it's and it's repealed by the Clinton administration. All right, so back to regular scheduled programming. But that was our presidential trivia segment, always brought to you by United Cigars. Uh, smoke one today and start living united it's distributors of uh, la giana excuse me uh featuring la giana van and of course distributors of jose dominguez bandolero Groflo, the firecracker and the highly acclaimed out byron and alfonso launch from selected tobacco smoke one today and start living united um before we get back to regular scheduled program i did want to i did want to be remiss we have a charity segment on this show gentlemen a nonprofit that we feature every single week from our guest choosing uh i suggested this as as a as as a as a choice for this week. And you guys definitely agreed. If we're going to sit here and talk uh, the business of the premium cigar association all, uh, all night, it's only fair that we highlight the PCA as our nonprofit of the week. Um, and so Scott, I'm, I'm going to put this in the chat and this will also be in the show notes, the ability to donate uh, to the PCA, but for people who, uh, you know, again, consumers, right? The PCA is an organization of retailers. Manufacturers are obviously closely involved as well. 
Um, but you know, for if I'm we're, again consumer over here, you know, what would a what would a donation of mine to the PCA accomplish, and how could it help? I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of the advocacy tonight, but I mean, what does it directly go to, and and what uh, what can I expect from my uh, from my dollars being uh, being spent or being donated? Yeah, great question. And uh, ultimately, it goes to exactly what we were just talking about. It goes towards the advocacy, whether it's uh, repealing or not even repealing, sorry, but fighting or pulling out a potential tax increase in like the Build Back Better plan, which could have raised taxes on. We talked earlier about the asylum when the big fat ring gauges, the, the taxes on those would have gone up by a thousand percent in the Build Back Better plan, right? So that's the work we do at a federal level, making sure that there's no national tax or any kind of minimum price that has to be defined as a premium cigar, making Jay have to price all of his cigars at $26 at a minimum because of the way they set it at the federal level. Uh, the second part of that is what we talked about earlier with all of the states. So every donation that you give, it either is going to go towards fighting uh, against any of those federal uh, and if, on all the stuff that the FDA does, you know, like this new proposed rule on on, on uh, banning flavored cigars, or at the state level where they do the same thing. Uh, more, the states are incredibly more active, uh, where they try to do everything from uh, local authorities. A big one, what that is for everybody's edification, is instead of the governor having control over the states and where they levy taxes, they want to go to local authority. So instead of us having to deal with fifty governors, they want us to deal with ten thousand communities. So each mayor or you know board uh um can uh like uh, city border uh can decide the taxes and if they want to raise the tax to 250% on cigars then they can so we call you know we you know we obviously fight against those so that's what it all goes towards but on top of that it also goes towards fighting to progress positive legislation so like cigar bar bills that we've just passed you know, um, in, in North Dakota, in Waco, Texas, um, in West Virginia, um, Connecticut, then tax caps. And quite frankly, cigar, you know, donations might even help your pocketbook. We just like tax caps. We had four of them passed last year, like Nevada, for example. Um, it brings the, 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 the cost of your cigars down because instead of having to pay 74% or whatever the case may be wholesale, it can bring it down to as low as 30 cents. Uh, so it really is very, very beneficial. <clears throat> For uh, for retailers uh, to spend, you know, to have to worry about spending even more money, um, and it helps our, our retailers thrive in that regard. But it also, look, if you're a consumer, it, it helps the end product, and ultimately, you know, it also helps you as a consumer as well because with us fighting FDA, it helps to ensure that the products that you love can continue to be made and manufactured and shipped and brought in to the shelves at your local brick and mortar. Fantastic. I'm going to stick and, with and, and that you can actually sit in your brick and mortar and smoke. There you go. <coughs> Jay, you were going to and, and Scott, I, and Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, because I know just enough to be dangerous. A contribution to the PCA, which is a 501c6, that may be tax deductible, but there's also another way to contribute. But there are a lot of rules to our PAC. Could you talk about the differences between the two and how the monies are done? And on that yeah, note, I'm, uh, gonna, so, I'm gonna step away, gentlemen, while you go through that, Scott. One second. Just I'll be back just momentarily. Go ahead, Scott. No, Take the floor. No problem. So if you go to premiumcigars.org slash donate, that's what goes directly to the advocacy work that we do that I just talked about. For a PAC contribution, uh, you can you need prior authorization for us to basically solicit funds from you and we have that, we send it out that you can sign prior auth. Um, but a PAC contribution is specifically to our political action community. It's a premium cigars pack. Um, and that's just like any other political action committee where we actually give money to candidates uh, who are 
obviously in favor of, of of the work that we do and who wants to do the work as the elected officials to help promote premium cigars and or fight back against any sort of the legislation. So we've done it for a number of different candidates that that, that are out there. We have the Congressional Cigar Caucus that has been reestablished that we helped uh, to, uh, work with them to reestablish that. So a lot of those candidates uh, give us a lot of money. Uh, we It's a good benefit for um, uh, for us, actually, because uh, a lot of folks like cigars and they like having events with cigars. Um, and so candidates, we can off, oftentimes we can donate cigars for those events. So the Political Action Committee is one. You again, same rules apply there as they apply everywhere else. It's only individuals, corporations can't do it. So if you're going to donate, you can't do it in the name of a business. It has to be personal, um, and you can you know, max out. I think it's twenty five hundred dollars a year that you can max out for the political action committee. But we only give two candidates: um, a that we believe are going to win, and uh, also b that um, well a that are going to obviously you know be uh, cigar friendly and, and help and work with us. But b also if they're going to win. But if they're constituents, then we're definitely all in on them. That's good news there. Um, I was I was gonna ask you about this since it, since it came up. I'll just uh, we can digress for just a second. So I've always been interested in this, and you guys have obviously seen the end product, Scott, more so than probably Jay. But still, so in a political from the political action standpoint, where we're backing candidates, and a candidate takes our money, then let's just say flips right after they've been elected and everything like that. What I mean, what kind of is that a realistic fear of someone who doesn't want to donate? It's like, hey, you know, a candidate can change their mind once they get in office, blah, blah, blah. This, can, can, this could come back to bite me, essentially. Um, I'm sure we've seen examples of it, Scott. But what it, like, what, what kind of things does like, uh, an organization like ours have in its, in its back pocket to, to, to help in cases like that? Yeah, and, you know, in, in my time here, I, mean, I we haven't seen any that have done it. Um, well, that's good. Uh, yeah. Um, the vast majority of candidates are either in, uh, districts that are just particularly South Florida and, and then also Pennsylvania, um, that it would just kind of be, um, political suicide if they decided to flip and somehow, you know, go, go against us. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to think here. I mean, there, there, there are those that you know have have changed parties, but it, um, and that might have some issues with some folks, you know, packed and things like that. But um, for us, really, ultimately, a lot of you know, not only are we giving money to those folks, but oftentimes it's through cigar events and and fundraising events where we're providing cigars uh, that that we do it. So a lot of times, those candidates are really big fans of cigar smoking. And um, and and do it off. I mean, there are those that won't accept our money, but we'll take our cigars. To our uh, my representative here in in Virginia is one. He's been a, a couple of events, and he'll definitely take cigars by the handful. But uh, we don't ever give him money because he he never votes the way that we want. <laughs> so, um, you know, we 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 vet pretty strenuously, um, and we don't. It, it's rare we give money without having a personal relationship. I mean, look, that's 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 the currency of lobbying is the relationships. So if we don't have a good, strong personal relationship with them, it, the chances of us giving them money, unless it's something um, where where it, it's really tough. I can't even think of an example off the top of my head. 
because it's not just us that has a personal relationships, right? You have to think about everybody from a George Padron um, on down to, uh, you know, uh, Mary Zarmack or Terry Gallagher or, or retailers that have relationships with some of these official, these elected officials. Um, so it's really, really rare that, uh, it's so rare. I can't think of anything off the top of my head where we've donated to somebody that we haven't had a, a personal relationship with. Well, that's good. That's fantastic. And, and I would add another thing for, the people that are watching this and will watch the recording is there's this assumption in the cigar industry that Republicans love cigars, the Democrats don't. Uh, that could not be further from the truth. You know, maybe Democrats are a little bit more anti-tobacco than Republicans, but we have a lot of really good partners who are Democrats, and we have a lot of enemies who are Republicans. Mm. Uh, John Boehner was no friend of the premium cigar industry. Mitch McConnell. Uh, so I think that uh, there have probably have been Democrats that we've supported, and uh, many times uh, there's this fallacy that the Republicans are all for good cigar things that Republican Democrats are not. And, and I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, cigars have really have, what I've learned from Glenn uh, and Josh Scott. You over the years is it really is a bipartisan, not only effort, but it is a bipartisan issue uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, it is. The premium cigar sector specifically, not necessarily tobacco, um, but the premium cigar industry as a whole is a very, very bipartisan uh, lobby. Um, and I, I think we've 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 they've done a great job. Uh, you've done a great job of, of of playing both sides of the aisle that way. So I think that's a really great point, Jay. Well, all it really right. is because I mean, if you think about it, we tend to we tend to focus on on the one component that we're all very familiar with is sitting down and enjoying and lighting up a cigar. At the end of the day, there are some of our biggest champions. I don't think really smoke all that often, but when you have you have to take a look at the totality of the industry, right? You look at farming, you look at small business, you you look at agriculture, you look at manufacturing, you look at shipping, you look at at a whole host of other things that kind of go on there with retail and and, and just a, a bunch of different things that end up happening within the industry. Um, immigration. There's a there's a bunch of stuff that goes on there, uh, not to mention the fact that you start looking at demographics, minority owned businesses, women owned businesses. Um, so and then to put a finer point on all of it, the amount of charity work and the amount of community involvement that this industry represents, I think per capita probably puts most other industries to shame. Um, you can say, oh, look at Apple's, you know all the millions apples gives yeah it's a drop in the bucket because they're a massive company uh but when you look at what the cigar industry does per capita i think it's it's a significant amount so it's not just simply the act of lighting up and enjoying a cigar that we're looking at in terms of the the culture of the advocacy that we do and the story of the advocacy that we tell it's the totality of the industry you know it's the single mom that's you know in in honduras that's able to pay for an education for her kids because of the factory mm -hmm. you know it's 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 the it's the farmers that are out there toiling it's the care that they take in in, in producing the plants and, and and you know toiling in the sun for the soil and everything else all the way through so it's not just simply about lighting the cigar and enjoying it yeah I, I, yeah and that's a great point you mentioned. go ahead jay please i'm sorry i cut you off uh one of the things i really admire about the industry is the way that so many cigar shops give and companies too i mean we're a lot of us are familiar with the the foundation of Fuentes and the Newmans, but Oliva has a foundation. That's what their new cigar is about. Uh, CLE has a foundation. Luciano has a foundation. There are a lot of great foundations out there that uh, do a lot of good things in these countries, and uh, there's a lot of cigar shops to get behind things. 
uh, that, that do a lot for their community. And I think that's an awesome thing that, that, like Scott said, we put a lot of other industries to shame with that. And we have a lot to be proud of as an industry. And I, I apologize. There's other companies and other retailers that are doing things. That I just don't recall them off the top of my head right now. But there's a lot being done mm-hmm. across the board. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I know a lot of cigar. Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say you definitely highlighted some of the key ones. So, yeah, no, keep keep going, Jay. I'm probably didn't... Well, I, I know like a lot of companies and and I, I you know, I'm a Fuente where I, I've been to their factory a lot. And they're not the only company that does that. But if, if you work for Fuente and you want to buy a house or buy a car, there's a credit union for their employees. A lot of the cigar companies do things like that. That is just awesome. They, they take really good care of their employees. I, I know situations where cigar companies have basically bought a house for a key employee and taken care of them. There's so many things that get done by our industry. And I'm very proud to be a member of this industry. And Scott gets more details on that than I do. But even in my little... Uh, you know, village here in Dallas, I get to hear about a lot of that. It's, it just it makes me feel good about what we do as an industry. No, absolutely. I, I think that the, one of the, you know, one of the things that we're talking about is the, where, where kind of money goes to and everything. And we're going to talk a little bit more about money here in just a second, but about the the actual fight that it does like we mentioned the different politicians on both sides of the aisle you know man's mentioned for example from west virginia as a democrat and he's been a huge proponent of the premium cigar industry and he says it very simply i don't think he's a cigar smoker if i'm being frank i mean he might have you might have had interactions with more interactions with him scott he might have you know you he might have been invited to the townhouse at some point i don't know if he smokes cigars per se but I've heard him say, I've heard him talk on this topic a number of times, not just in the doc, the documentary hand rolled, but his, 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 you know, his summary is this, basically the same thing. If it makes sense for business, he's going to vote for, if it makes sense, he's going to vote for, if it doesn't make sense, he's not going to vote for it. And what he saw in the premium cigar industries issue was, you know, like you were talking about, Scott, it doesn't just affect the ability to go into a premium cigar shop and light a cigar. It affects that small business owner, that small business owner's employees, and all the way down to the single mom in Honduras who rolls cigars for as a full time job and can take care of her, fa- you know, her family, you know. And so there's this domino and, or snowball effect or whatever metaphor you want to toss at it that he sees the bigger picture down the road, and that's really the short sightedness of our opposition. And yes, they, all they see is the tobacco. And that's what they're really focused on. Well, we're focused on, yes, we're focused on the premium cigar aspect of it, but we're looking at a very grander picture. And like you said, our position is changing tactics. So Scott, what, what can, what's some of the tactics that we're seeing right now from our opposition that, you know, ultimately we've got, you know, we're, we're able to kind of push back with our own, our own positioning and our own tactics, so to speak. Yeah, so besides the the war of attrition that they're trying to deal with, they're trying to go ahead and create, you know, thousands of different problems for us. Um, one of the key elements, so Bloomberg, you know, another $400 million plus that he's putting into to fighting tobacco usage. What they do is they love to conflate and exaggerate. Um, doing my best, you know, uh, Johnny Cochran here. But they love to conflate and exaggerate um things that are happening uh, of the epidemic du jour of things like vaping and and youth usage you know and it's always one of those things and i remember 
ages ago when I was in, in college and a professor talked about the, um, uh, the ways in which at the time it was a, it was a government international um, studies class. He's talking about the ways in which uh, governments will use uh, uh, this is all to protect the kids. And when you say protect the kids, well, who's not going to get behind that. Right? right. And so everything's to protect the kids, of course. Right. Going back to Jay's prohibition question, it's all to protect the kids. So uh, there's a lot of this conflation and they exaggerate. Right. And so, you know, interestingly enough, we would talk about what we just talked about, but we, we want to get more personal, meaning we need to have a lot more and a lot better storytelling in this regard. Cause again, going back to this is that, it, it, it's a little bit like marketing, right? People don't purchase your product because they it's a logical choice. People purchase because of emotional connection and emotional response to something. Um, and that's why branding and marketing and, and merchandising is so very important in the cigar industry, right? Um, because at the end of the day, they, 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 they see tobacco as evil and tobacco is, is a plant, right? And the way that I often like to compare this is tobacco is a natural thing the same way that a cow is. But the way that McDonald's treats their cow and derives their products from that cow and then produces it, that if people were to consume that, the way that they consume it is obviously not very good for your health. But they're not attacking that the same way they, they attack tobacco. They just attack tobacco as a whole as if the plant itself was spawned from Satan. And so on the flip side of it is, is that if I take a very nice, beautiful cut of steak, Wagyu, and it's you know aged and it's prepared by a Michelin star chef – that's something that's going to cost a lot of money, and it's not something that most people enjoy. And on top of that, the people that do enjoy it probably only do it once every month. Or, I mean, there's just not a lot of people except for the really super rich that are eating Wagyu beef prepared by a Michelin star chef on a regular basis. But that's not going to be deleterious to your health, right? There's no population health aspect to people enjoying a delicious, very expensive steak. And that's very much the, the same type of thing that we're looking at here is that when you're looking at the reasons why tobacco has been a health problem in the past is not because of the tobacco plant itself or even nicotine in and of itself. Uh, and research actually bears that out. And so what they do, and Brian King, was, who's the head of Center for Tobacco Products, so I was at a conference with him back in August, and he was taking questions from an audience. It was not a very friendly audience to him at all. You know, It was a bunch of uh, 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 smoker-friendly uh, people that were there. Um and all their franchise owners. And and he kept coming back to half a million people die from preventative, you know, deaths and diseases due to smoking. So again, they're conflating that with what we're doing here um, with premium cigars. Then they exaggerate that. And so what they try to do is they say, well, if a little cigarette can cause this, then surely a big cigar is going to cost this. But because people don't smoke cigars like they smoke cigarettes, it just isn't that bad. But we know it's that bad because it's just a big cigarette, right? So that's a dishonest way of looking at the data because, again, right. if it's if it's as addictive as they say that it is, I don't just shoot heroin. I don't just snort cocaine recreationally, right? It's something that's so addictive that you just keep going and going and going and going, right? And – other uh, the, so if you flip that around and just simply say, look, the behavior shows that it's not addictive, and we've gone through the process of how it's fermented and how it's aged, and the reason why it is the way that it is is it's a very different product, and they just don't seem to understand, right? You can take sugar and you can take flour, and there are literally 
endless ways in which you can use those ingredients to create a number of different products and can have varying degrees of impacts on your health. And you can have, you can take the exact same ingredients and make the exact same, you know, consumable good. And it will affect you bear differently than it affects me because of whatever our genetic makeup is and body compositions are, right? So none of that is taken into consideration. They try to boil it down and it's very effective. This is a very effective public campaign that they've been able to do pretty much unchecked for 40 plus years. But they boil it down to a simple common denominator because, again, when you're dealing with the masses, like we talked about earlier, people are idiots. Smoking kills. That's right. what it comes down to. Right. And there's no nuance. Um, and what's interesting is that I think that there's going to be a day of reckoning for that as you start getting – further. Jay talked about marijuana earlier. As that starts to proliferate throughout, that's going to start coming back, I think, in, in, in ways in which people aren't anticipating with, with things like marijuana because – the smoking marijuana kill because again it's smoking kills and so it's 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 a really interesting thing and and you know they try to shift when it relates to tobacco for example with vaping because vaping was a a, a new tobacco product but what they did is that they didn't use any tobacco they derive all their nicotine synthetically through things like eggplant mostly right so now it becomes a nicotine problem and that's now they're focusing on nicotine which could pose a very big problem for us because the product is very different, but if they're just looking at that factor, it can present a very big problem for us. So right. they continue to shift narratives around to try to explain why smoking kills in whatever format. But, you know, again, we got the FDA victory because they didn't do their due diligence. The research that they do have shows that what they're doing is wrong and that they need to actually go back and do the the, the good work and the research to justify what they're doing. Right. So it's it's it, it and then they, uh, and then on top of all of that they use things like uh vague they use vague language in in uh, regulation and legislation because vague language gives them a very broad scope to regulate and make up new rules. So when they talk about it, here's the reason why flavor bans are such a big and important thing. They want to use very broad language, but if I were to ask you, Bear, when I say a characterizing flavor other than tobacco, how on earth are you? What 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 are you, and if and if you were to remove bans and names off of products, how the hell are you going to explain that or pull, pro, pull products off the shelves to to really regulate that? How on earth are yeah. you going to manage the regulation of that? There there is no there is none. Yeah, because the fact of the matter is is that again tobacco is as varied as as coffee is as varied as grapes are and everything else that comes about or corn or rice when they're put into to making or potatoes for making spirits of vodka or whiskey or bourbon or a bourbon or whiskey or scotch or whatever the case may be or rice or gins or whatever the case that comes into play so that's why flavor bands are so problematic but they want to use that because what they're doing is they're using you know mango fruit vape to try to push that now onto a flavored or infused cigar and the, the and and it just it and they don't have the data that backs that up, but they just lump it all together. Like I said, they conflate it and then they exaggerate it. I should have just stuck with that and and stopped talking twenty minutes ago. But no, but I I, I think it's no, we, I think it's a huge I think it's a very huge point. It's something that I've I've you know touted on this show and and in the show that I do with Coop you know for years now, six years and counting, that we're. You know, they they boil everything's well, like you said, they 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 do they use vague language and everything, but they boil things down to a to its one to its one similar characteristic. We're talking about nicotine, right? Or we're talking about the plant. 
But what they're not talking about is all the additives and everything that they add into cigarettes or to dip or the fact that vape is actually not even a tobacco product. It's derived from synthetically, like you said, from mostly things like eggplant. No one wants to talk about that. They want to boil it down to the common denominator and they want to blame it on that one thing. And life's just not that simple. If it was, we would have a lot more solutions than we have problems. Unfortunately, we have a lot more problems than solutions. And I like it's the one thing that's probably confounds me as a as a as a free thinking individual, mostly. I mean, I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. I, I you know I use really big words. I have a great lexicon, so I confuse a lot of people that way. But I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. But even I know that, and that's really what the probably that's my problem that confounds me with this. Like even people who like I talk to and I meet on a regular basis, like oh you're into cigars, like hey like are you worried about the health aspect? I'm like why should I be here worried about the health aspect? Well like well tobacco is bad for you. I'm like where did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, it's it it disappoints me too as a as a private citizen that the FDA is not doing its job. I mean, whether it's hormones of the food chain, or now that you can add certain things to a product, but it doesn't have to be listed as an ingredient. Right. Um, or a, a more obvious one is COVID. I mean, most of the people in this country who died from COVID uh, were either very old or had complications due to diabetes. And I just find it confounding that we no longer require gym for for every year in, in school anymore and that nutrition is very important and no one has talked about the role of diabetes and diet and i'd rather see the fda even if i didn't smoke as a citizen i'd rather see the fda focus more on that um for example one of the reasons i don't drink it's not because i need to go to meetings though in the past i probably had more than i should have but when you when you read the actual literature the fda's own research Secondhand smoke does not cause cancer. But more interestingly enough is if you add even three drinks of alcohol a week to smoking, your chances of a heart disease go up exponentially. Uh, if you smoke five cigars a day, your chances of heart disease go from one in 50,000 to two. But if you add three drinks a week, it goes to like 50 times. And that's my concern is that I think the FDA has a proper role, but I think they're going after easy targets. We're low line crews. It's easy yes, to go attack us. Like my biggest concern, I, I vape in a lot of ways was a good thing because they got people to stop ingesting all that stuff from cigarettes. But you're putting stuff in your lungs. Some of it's similar chemically to antifreeze with vape. That that's a concern. But let's focus on cigars. Uh, it just to me i would like to see the f I, I want to see the fda function the way it should i don't think they're an evil organization they're grossly underfunded but i just think that there are things that they could do that are more beneficial for the health of this country than just smoking a premium yeah. handmade cigar yeah and that's what so that's I, what bothers I, I would, me it's not like i think everything they do is bad right i would caution us though as an industry when we're looking at it from an advocacy perspective this all makes sense to us but I can tell you having yeah, conversations with – Well, I was just saying, having – I mean, we, and like we, the, we all think yeah, that's a great point, right? But here's the problem is that when that point's brought up to Brian King, his response is, 
I'm not in charge of the FDA. I'm in charge of the Center for Tobacco Products, which is not underfunded, which has way too much money with no oversight. They don't have to they don't have any budget oversight. Right. Brian King does not have to have any sort of Senate confirmation. So the point we have to make is we have to stay on point with premium cigars are different. And Brian King says, show me the science. Well, you have the science. We have the path studies. We can show this. We deliberately have or we can uh, show that. Smoking once, you know, the, the, the average cigar smoker has no uh, difference between their public health outcomes versus a non-smoker, even those that are smoking uh, up to two a day. So and, and on top of all of that, and when when I was providing testimony and, and question and answer with the National Academy of Sciences, they start talking about the amount of people that are you know, smoking more than one premium cigar a, a day. And it was 1% of the 5%. I said, so you're talking – and if I give you the 18-year-olds, you're talking about 158,000 people in this country. Uh, that's not a public health crisis. That's not. Because – and you still can't even point to the fact that – so again, this is one of those things to where we've got to be able to – we we got to stay focused. Yeah, the FDA is not doing what they need to do. The nutrition, the sugar, everything else, and, and the inflammation and all that other stuff, that's all very, very true. The fact of the matter is that's not going to move any sort of advocacy ball for us. That's not going to go anywhere with anybody. Right. But and, and it's great because it, it 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 lands with us. It resonates. It resonates across the board with a whole host of other things. But what really ultimately is we have the data and we have the science. What we have to get better at is we have to get better at and we've been doing a much better job. But what the opposition has consistently done is they will tout out and they show somebody who's out there that's got to use a little voice thing because they've lost their voice because they've been smoking too much. And it doesn't matter that that was cigarettes. They have put out people with individual stories that are so emotional and heartbreaking, right? Kids dying from cancer because of secondhand smoke, right? It doesn't matter that the data isn't on their side. They've been telling more compelling stories. So the reason why we start to gain ground is because we've started to tell more compelling stories as it relates to people like Jay, people like Steve Castro, who had to sleep on a cot while he built his business, right? And when you combine that with the data, so Steve told me the story about when he first started his business, he slept in his, his storage room on a cot and would go across the street to the YMCA to shower because they didn't have many money because he was building his business. And so you have people that are literally putting retirements and college funds and car payments and mortgages into running these businesses. On top of all of that, you have stories where there was a gentleman from Fredericksburg um, when I was down at Hogshead who was telling this story when during COVID, he was almost I mean, this guy was a was a was a Marine vet. He hardened gravelly voice was in a leather vest because he rides his bike. Right. This is a guy when you're like, I would not want to mess with this guy in a dark alley. But this guy was moved to almost tears because Hawks had stayed open during COVID and gave him a place of refuge to go and to be able to smoke and see people and have some sense of normalcy and, and respite in this crazy pandemic that was going on. Those are the types of stories that are resonating. And when we were talking to the uh, Office of Stakeholder Relations with the FDA, their director came and found us uh, because he had to miss the meeting and said, hey, your stories of small retailers and small businesses is resonating with the right people at the FDA. Because it's a different story than they've heard when it comes to tobacco. And when you combine that with saying, well, these are the stories of this group of people that your data shows has no public health um, uh, issues, it starts to gain ground. And we have an anecdotes, which they are, but we have anecdotes that are very powerful that respond mm -hmm. to the stories and narratives they've been painting for years. So if, as consumers that listen to this or retailers that listen to this, think about those stories and think 
think about how you can share those stories with other people because that helps to have us a grassroots narrative that's much larger than what the narrative that they're trying to paint about smoking and killing and being this bad thing on society and dragging it down the same way that the temperance movement tried to drag alcohol down. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's there's tons of compelling stories. I mean, one of the most recent with one of our guests tonight, you know, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's as recent as the 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 COVID shutdowns. You know, Jay was locked out of his business, his own business. He couldn't even set foot. He almost got arrested for putting the key in the fucking keyhole. Yeah. You know, and I think that that, you know, I mean, we're not even talking about him trying to sell anything. We're talking about him entering a doorway. And, you know, if Jay had suddenly decided to make a business change and he decided to sell CBD products, he could obviously open up and not only open up, but he could also make money. And business owners shouldn't have to make decisions like that in order to survive, um, you know, global pandemic notwithstanding. That that that's I mean, well, that's, and, that's the type of that's the type of vagueness that we're talking about, like vague decisions and, you know, and just, you know, the the idiocy, the idiocy and, and bureaucracy that you've been talking about, Scott. Well, and that's and, and the point there is, is that drill, drill a little deeper into that story for, for for Jay and for business owners, because Dick Durbin will say, well, good. <clears throat> Jay's peddling death. I don't want him to go into his into his store. Right. You know, Dick Durbin, Mitch Jiller, the former uh, head of the Center for Tobacco Products, his whole his whole raison d'etre was lighting a tobacco leaf on fire kills people, right? So the response that we have to have is is the the detriment and the pain and suffering that this causes to everyday people on a legal product that is not killing people. You gotta you 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 have to home in on those emotional plights. Because those stories are going to resonate and land a whole hell of a lot more emotionally with people, not just day jail almost getting arrested. Because yes, I, yeah, that's 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 crazy. That's incensed. But it really ultimately, I I, I tell this, I've, I've told this story before, um, and I did this at the the meeting a couple of years ago. And the reason why I told it is because I, this is the type of emotional weight that hits me. It it showcases the importance of of what this community means to me. But also the type of story that I think this is why I think this matters so much and why these stories matter. And so I talk about this. So I, this will I'll, I'll boil this down as, as quickly as I possibly can. But when the Steelers were playing the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl a long time ago, I have a very good friend of ours that we had this fantasy football league with and everything. And he was a, a former frat brother of, of, of one of my really, really close friends. And he was there. He he, you know, brewed his own beer, and we're having a good time. And he was friends with Ben Roethlisberger because he went to school with him. So we talked a lot of shit that night and everything else and stuff. And 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 I had just been to this meeting where I went to Updown and and I found the Tatuaje J21 for the first time. So we got to talking about cigars, and he was you know into cigars too. So we started talking, and I was like, man, it's too bad it's too cold outside. I was like, otherwise we could go outside, we could have a cigar. I was like, but I'll tell you what, I said I'll get some J21s because I loved it so much, and we'll we'll share some, you know, we'll go have cigars when uh, when the weather breaks. I got a call from our mutual friend the next day at work, and he was like, hey, you know, Dan last night. He's like, was everything okay? It's like, yeah, we're having a great time, and and I'm like, why? Dan had gone home and he killed himself that night. Called the police because he didn't want his mom to find his body. Um, and so I vowed that day that I was never going to pass up an opportunity to have a cigar with a friend because you never know. Fast forward to having a conversation with Storm Bowen from Cigars for Warriors. He's got a veterans group that smokes cigars. And you hear the awful statistic that more than 22 veterans commit suicide every single day. 
but not one veteran in their cigar smoking group has committed suicide because they have a community built around cigars. I've talked to mm. too many people in this industry that have said cigars save their life. They're, you know, they're alcoholics. They don't, they don't drink anymore, but cigars save their lives because of the community it gives them. Those are the types of stories that have real impact. And those are real stories with real people. Mm-hmm. And there are literally thousands of those stories that are, are that's that is our biggest tool that we have to be able to showcase why this is so important. And then we back it up with science saying these aren't killing people. And in fact, these things are actually improving people's lives and it's actually helping people. And then you can even go through and tell stories where, you know, I mean, it, the, the Fuente, I mean, my God. There is an entire city in in the Dominican Republic that has hospitals, that has schools for people that would not exist without this industry. And you can you can drill down even to those stories for people whose lives have been saved, people who have gone on to become doctors and lawyers and 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 a whole host of other things because of what they have done there. That is all a narrative that is just so sparse right now of this industry that the more that that gets out there. It's just going to propel us even farther forward in terms of where we stand with regulators. They're going to find it more and more difficult to justify what they're doing. I mean, this kind of goes nice segue, Scott, into our last question before we get into our fun segments here about it. And see, I think this is the problem for like for like zealots like myself who are very passionate about this industry, is that I get kind of kind of buried in the minutia. And you're talking about you're talking about just impactful stories because we've we've talked about we've mentioned alcohol a couple of times tonight. And alcohol is a, is a, is a, is a danger. If you want to talk about the kids, right. And that's what, that's one of my biggest things about, you know, the soapbox that I get on when I talk about the topic of premium cigars is the premium cigar usage among America's youth is so much of a, is such of a minute number that it, it doesn't even warrant discussion. But if you want to go ahead and thrust it into the discussion of national debate or even not even national debate, but you just want to thrust it into the discussion of debate, let's talk about alcohol usage among minors. Let's talk about how many drunk driving yeah. deaths there are among teenagers in this country. And that number pales in comparison to the death of lung cancer that can't all be contributed and attributed, excuse me, not contributed, cannot all be attributed to premium cigar usage. So if you want to talk about an issue, this is where I get, this is where I get all hot and bothered. The, if you want to get to talk about an issue that, that doesn't, that doesn't get brought up because again, the power of money and the power of lobby, it's alcohol use. And like I enjoy a nice scotch just as much as the next person. I enjoy a beer on occasion. I drink as opposed to Jay who doesn't. But you know that that's a real to me that's the real discussion point. But again, it, it's it, it's it's kind of almost all warrantless is what you're telling. The impact of some of these stories is what really is what drives the needle. If if I if I'm if I'm interpreting your comments correctly here, Scott. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there are a lot of things we can point to. The reality is, we're just not big enough. Most most members of Congress, most elected representatives in state legislatures, drink. Whether it's a glass of wine, whether it's a scotch, whether it's you know a high noon or truly right. Most people in this, most adults in this country, at some point, will 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 imbibe right. Um. And I also think that that for us, our advocacy is better spent by building bridges and commonalities than having to say, well, they're getting away with it. So so should we. That's not that's I don't that's not a winning argument. Um, and again, going back to Brian King, 
Brian doesn't give a shit about alcohol. He doesn't give a shit about sugar. He doesn't give a shit about dietary guidelines. What does he care about? He's the head of the Center for Tobacco Products. That's who we have to – That he's our audience of one, right? So what does he care about? He cares about the science. And then when we are able to focus in and, and home in on what he cares about, then as we translate that out, and this is the good part, right? We've got a lot of good stuff right now that is all in place. All of these bricks with the FDA lawsuits, with the NASM studies, with the PATH studies, and, and, and a whole host of these things. These are all the bricks. That's great. But the problem is, is that the antis can easily push those bricks over. What we need now, these stories are the mortar that's going to solidify those bricks to build that wall around us. The, that, that, that steals their justification because it, the stories – this is the reason why, you know, there's a great book called Wired for Story that's out there, but there's a reason why, you know, TV shows and books and all these other things. The reason why they tell stories in certain ways is because it's, it's to remove the diabolical nature of what is out there, right? And, and let's, Jay, you brought this up, which I thought was a fantastic point earlier when you're talking about gay marriage of, from a long time ago and these different groups that got together that put aside their differences to get that accomplished, right? Well, some of the major ways in which pu public opinion was shifted was because of how much in the pop culture and the, and the uh, rising generations were used to seeing it in so many different formats and different ways, right? And people identifying and all these other things, right? So um, in that same sense, the more stories that we tell, it starts to remove that barrier of seeing somebody that smokes of, of this, oh, it's just – it's a nasty habit that's killing you. No, no. It, smoking cigars is not that, Right. It's not that at all. And here are all these stories that showcase and it puts the, the, the human impact behind all of it. On top of that, here are all the bricks that we've built now with all the scientific data that this is not, you know, it's, 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 it's not a Jedi mind trick, but it's almost like these are not the droids you're looking for, right? This is not the, this is not the tobacco product you're looking for. And that's why the delineation of how it's regulated and how it's approached is very different. But in order for us to showcase that, we showcase all these stories about the people that are impacted positively by this industry and what it means and why it's different. And then you have a very different – most people don't want to quit smoking cigars because it's not it's not something they have to do. But there's an entire industry that's built out there for smoking cessation because there are people that are addicted to cigarettes that want to stop smoking cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why that's the case. And, and, uh, and there, if, I may, if I may add – you know, when you and Coop and Aaron and Matt, Ty, and, you know, half-wheel people talk about the PCA, that's the difference in Scott Pierce. Uh, we're, a, we're a bunch of disorganized small business owners that couldn't find our ass with our hands in the dark with both hands. But Scott Pierce is not just an employee. He has a vision and I would say 95% of the positive changes we've seen in the PCA, and the PCA is not a trade show, is Scott Pierce. He has a vision. He knows the arguments to make, and it's not, and it's the team he's built with with Josh and Glenn and, and Lisa and Lisa and Maria and and Antoine. Scott, you deserve a lot of credit because of your passion. And um you know, if we were a board of one, we'd, I'd double your salary because you are so invaluable to the fight. Because as a business owner, I get this. You can have an employee. And I think a lot of our executive directors in the past have been employees, some of them dishonest. But you 
see this as a career and a calling. And Vision 50, for example, which I didn't really understand it the first time you explained it, you deserve a lot of credit for how the PCA is moving in the direct direction. And people may piss and moan about different things that are not perfect. And I know that sometimes I want to hit my head against a wall when I have board meetings. But when I look at where we are now versus a year ago, two years ago, I've been almost three years on the board. I am so impressed with your passion. And Scott, you deserve more credit than than you ever get for being such a great leader and having vision. And yes, the, the board has helped along with that and supported you. But like any organization, you're the president of the company. You're the chief executive officer. We're the board of directors. We're there to say, wait, 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 if you're going out, out on a limb. But you do an amazing job for industry. And I'm so proud to have you as our executive director. And I hope that you never leave. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you very much, Jay. I, uh, you're making me blush over here, man. So I appreciate that. It's very nice words. But uh, uh, like you mentioned, the team, I mean, all, all the credit really does go to them. Uh, I'm not trying to you know, deflect or whatever else would be nice. But uh, they truly are. You know, I've been doing this for 25 years in trade associations. There's never been a better team that I've ever worked with top to bottom uh, than this group. Um, and uh, I just I'm incredibly lucky that 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 these folks all want to come and, and, and do what they do and do it at such a high level. So I appreciate that very much, Jay. Thank you. You're right. It is the team, but it's the team that you built. It's not the team that I built or Scott Regina built or Todd Navy built. It's a team that you built and that credit goes to you. We are a different organization today than we were five years ago, 95% because of Scott Pierce and no one else may have the balls to say it. I don't give a fuck. I'll say it. <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> very kind words. I appreciate it. You, you that got very me much. to join the board. I remember uh, having long conversations on the phone with Scott Pierce, telling him about all the things I hated about PCA. And mm -hmm. Scott always would answer my questions and hear me out. And it finally got me to the point where I called him one day and said, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And it was his fire, his integrity that got me to want to run for the board. So you deserve it. And I don't think you get enough credit. You're always taking slings and arrows, so give you a little love that's well-deserved. And your team. You have hired phenomenal people. Uh, I mean, I remember when you came to Dallas, when Lisa came into a store, she was just so infectious. Everyone that I've worked with, I've been very proud. Uh, and I always, I always joke to my wife, I wish I had employees at my store, and I've got great employees that are the caliber of the employees of the Premium Cigar Association. Yeah, thank you, and I know that they'll appreciate hearing that. They're good. They're they're very good people. Fantastic. Well, kind words from uh, from Jay to uh, about the uh, the amazing team that Scott's put together. And Scott, I'll I'll you know, uh, not with as much experience, but just from a, an onlooker standpoint, uh, I'll echo a lot of the sentiments that Jay was saying. I've you know, I've, I I have I've I've always uh, I've always taken great liberty with my constructive criticism of the PCA. Um, and uh, that will always continue, but <laughs> but I definitely uh, definitely echo the amazing job that you have done and uh, the amazing leadership that you have um, that you have at the top of the helm there, and uh, that uh, the org the organization and the industry as a whole is very lucky to have you. So thank you so much, and thank you, gentlemen, for being a part of this conversation today.
We're going to conclude with some fun segments uh, so that uh, Jay can get out of here after working a double at his store. Uh, so appreciate uh, appreciate you guys being on. So this uh, next segment is uh, brought to you by Postani Cigars. It's Everybody Eats. If you always make sure that your servant's towel is bigger than your appetite, everybody will always get there. Postani Cigars is more than just great cigars made by cool people. They embody an attitude of gratitude and grit with Postani. Everybody Eats. So uh, this should be a really fun uh, fun segment tonight considering we have a culinary arts school uh, grad with us tonight Scott Pierce so thank you very much for joining us um, so here's my question with the holidays here what is a um, I've asked this a couple of times I have three typical questions that I've asked around this but what is a uh, food that um, or excuse me what is the best experience you have with eating with other people best experience with food that you've had with eating other people and if you want to mention a dish that'd be fantastic but it's completely up to you I, do i have to go first yeah i'm gonna make the call you go first yeah, I, I, yeah go first um man there's there uh there's just god that's a that's a lifetime of meals um I like the philosopher uh, George uh, Santayano, where he says, "There's nothing to which men, while they have good food and drink, cannot be reconciled." Um, and I th very much that's the story of my life. I think that's kind of. I went to culinary school not because I ever wanted a, a career um, in in a kitchen, but because I'm just a fat kid and I just wanted to make sure I never had a bad meal. Um, <laughs> so uh, there one one in particular. I was in my early 20s and I was over in Spain at a, at a meeting when I was at uh, working. And uh, finishing up this conference, they uh, it was in, in a, a town called Alicante, which is right on the Mediterranean. Um, I was a really picky eater, um, and uh, and um, the first time I ever ate tomatoes was there and liked them, right? Um, but we go up to this other city called Altea, and it's this old Spanish little town, effectively, and uh, set out in like this little town square, cobblestone streets, nice you know, Spanish cathedral that's out there. It's like 10 o'clock at night and there's just this big, long table and all these families are getting together to eat this, you know, evening, weekend meal together, um, which struck me. Um, and we went to this restaurant. And we were sitting outside. It was like a little house almost, but on the outside balcony, it overlooked this cliff that went down and the Mediterranean was just out there. Uh, the sea was just out there um, and just served this just incredible dish uh, um, of this beautiful fish um, and ended with this cinnamon ice cream. And and so that right there, um, honestly, um, it was a braised fish um, in like a tomato broth, honestly, which was weird for me that I would have enjoyed that. But it, it was so delicious and refreshing um, and fresh uh, that for me, it was one of those things to where I'd lived in France um, just a couple years before that. And that kind of started to open me up to different culinary experiences and food and everything. Um but but really, it was there at that meal that uh, was kind of just like this total sensory of the atmosphere, the smells, the sounds, the the, the sights of 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 where we were, um, the ocean being right there, this uh, and and then the food in and of itself, which was all just you know fresh from the day, uh, was all just the ultimate experience for me um, as far as uh, a, 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 a seminal kind of eating experience for me. What uh, do you remember what fish it was? I don't. Okay. I don't. Unfortunately, like, this was twenty. You lived in France. I didn't know. Twenty-three years. I lived in France and Switzerland for a couple of years. Yeah. Where in France? Um, uh, mostly in Lyon. 
um, and a little bit of time in in a little city uh, called Valence, which is a little bit south of there. Oh wow! I actually, got to visit the nougat capital of the world when I lived there in a, in a little town called Montelimar. A lot of nougat. <laughs> Interesting. I, mean, I didn't. Yeah, know I was there I when France. I was there in '98 when France won the World Cup. So that oh, was. Oh shit! Yeah, that was coconuts, man. That was uh, yeah, it was crazy. Fantastic. That's a country that loves their food, man. France. All right. Yeah. Bo- bonus points, culinary school grad. What are the three secrets of French cuisine? <laughs> Shit. Uh, um, Jesus, I don't even know to tell you the truth. Sauce. Uh, um, uh, I'm not going to say secrets. I'm just going to say that the, uh, uh, sauce, uh, um, shit, cheese, and bread. <laughs> there's, there's probably better answers than the joke that I've heard. It's butter, butter, and butter. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's 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 very true. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Jay, what about that's you? Paula, that's Paula Dean's secrets is butter, butter, and more butter. That, that's true. That's a true story. Jay, what about you? Best experience of eating. It's funny that you said that because I was going to say butter, cream, and wine. Um, you know, it's it's like you know Steve Saka named a cigar line after this. You know, sober mesa, which means upon the table. It it goes back to the salt covenant that you know you would eat salted food. You know, the whole big thing in Game of Thrones is that they ate salted food and that you killed somebody with gastrite. You know, or even you know. Jesus Christ dipped uh, the sop in the salted food and gave it to Judas as an effort to forgive him. Uh, you know, it's eating is such a big deal throughout all of human history. Um, and I've had so many great meals. I, I would say probably two examples. I can't narrow it down. The first was when I was dating my wife. Uh, we went to uh, her grandmother's house. And I asked if I could help. And she says, okay. She had me. She's like, set the table. Well, she didn't know that my mother was a fanatical devotee of Emily Post. And I set the table perfectly. And my future mother-in-law was impressed. But her mother, my wife's grandmother, basically gave my mother-in-law a look like, okay, he's a keeper. And that was, I don't even remember what we ate, uh, but that was such a big <laughs> meal because, uh, you know, uh, you know, my, my parents are deceased and, and her family's become my family. Um, but probably there's so many experiences, but Scott said Paris. So I started thinking. And in 2012, my wife and I, we went to London, Paris and Amsterdam for our 20th wedding anniversary. And it's very difficult to smoke in France uh, because of the anti-smoking laws, but the French are rebels like us Americans. And I remember we went to go have an early dinner, which was probably like 7.30 at night. And we were staying in the St. Germain area. And we went to this little, I don't know what the term is, Scott. Is it a bodega or whatever? It's not really a, a restaurant. I don't think I ever ate at a restaurant in Paris, but this little small kitchen. And I came in and there was a guy and his wife. They owned it. They were a mom and pop shop. And... I decided I'd get the beef bourguignon or whatever. That's sort of a standard dish. And oh, yeah. Red wine. And as as we're talking, and thank God, 
you know, he, he spoke English. Because I told everyone in Paris, the first thing I did is, hey, I don't speak French, and I apologize, I speak English. And everybody was nice to me. And I said, it'd be great if I could smoke a cigar, but you got these smoking rolls. He goes, oh, no, no, we have these sliding glass doors. And I'll never forget, he slid the doors open, I handed him a cigar, and he sat down with his wife, and we ate this, this beef bourguignon and, and drank red wine, and we smoked. We all smoked cigars, where it's illegal to smoke cigars, in the heart of Paris. And it was about a two, two and a half hour meal, and we talked about cigars we talked about kids we talked about obviously it was our 20th wedding anniversary we talked about that and we talked about how much we loved paris i you know me i'm direct and i said you know i've heard all these stories that the french are rude and don't like foreigners and particularly parisians i read that in a french guidebook that don't go to paris they're rude and i said that everyone we've met in paris has just been delightful and we had the greatest time we just shared stories he talked about his family and his parents and why he got into cooking. And my wife talked about how she had taken four years of French in high school and couldn't articulate a sentence. And we just had laugh after laugh. And there's just something amazing about food. Um, and I, I, I love to have uh, a meal with a cigar. You know, in my house, uh, I, my children have memories of many, many family dinners with me smoking a cigar at the table. Uh, which they were shocked when they saw some All in the Family episodes that actually that did happen in the history of our planet. And I'm very blessed that I live 12 minutes away from Chamberlain's where I can go and have a steak and a salad and I can smoke a cigar and listen to music that's a little too loud. But that that <laughs> meal that we had in Paris was great because you just never know about people. You know, I heard all these stories about how Parisians were unfriendly. And this man and his wife went out of their way to enjoy. His wife didn't really smoke cigars, but she smoked one anyways. And of course, I've always got a full humidor. And everywhere I went in Paris was like that. We'd go to a cafe and smoke outside, and the cafe's closing at 9 o'clock. I'm like, oh, I got to go. I'm like, no, no, no. There's a cafe down the two blocks. It's open until 10. And we went to one that closed at 9, then one that closed at 10, then one that closed at 11. 3 o'clock in the morning, okay, we got to go home now. And I, we really enjoyed our time in Paris, but that meal was fantastic. And there, there is something magical about eating food and breaking bread, even if you don't have a cigar, but a cigar just puts it over the top. That, and it's amazing to me how many premium cigar smokers have never smoked a cigar while eating a meal. I, I've seen it happen over and over again. Um, and I think it's a great segment because to me, the essence of civilization is breaking bread together. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if, if you're, if you're married and have kids or if you're single, whatever you, you see it over and over again. Uh, I remember I was on a train. I'm heading a third story. Now I was on a train heading up to Aberdeen, Scotland, where I was studying for law school. And there was this young couple. They seem old to me. I was 22 at the time. And they were opening up a bottle of scotch. And they're like, are you traveling alone? I'm like, yes. And they invited me over and we drank the scotch, which for me at 22 was like, woof. And they had some crackers and some meat, whatever. I don't know what I was eating. And we just had a delightful time for three hours on this train. And I had no money. I was so broke. I didn't have money for anything. And they're giving me food and scotch. And it's just amazing. You learn a lot about people when you break bread with them. And that's, but the memory in Paris is probably my favorite because of I really wanted to smoke a cigar and they really wanted to smoke a cigar with me. And he didn't have anything to do because people in Paris, they're like people in Miami. They don't eat till 10 o'clock at night. 
and I, I couldn't wait that long. And it was such a delightful meal. And I remember that that was almost 12 years ago. It was fantastic. That's awesome. I love that. Great story, Jay. Thank you so much. That was our Everybody Eats segment sponsored by Pastania Cigars. If you always make sure that your servant's towel is bigger than your appetite, everybody will always get theirs. Pastania Cigars is more than just uh, great cigars made by cool people. They embody an attitude of gratitude and grit. With Pastania, everybody eats. Our next segment, gentlemen, of course, is our silent moment. Refuge is more than just a physical place. It can be a state of mind. From life's greatest, Some of life's greatest reflections can be found in our own personal asylum. Moments like these were made for asylum cigars. So light up an asylum and choose your refuge. Gentlemen, you've both been on uh, when we've had this segment before. And so I, I kind of want to challenge you guys a little bit to hopefully not repeat this other similarity. So I'm going to ask this in the, in the, the span of the last uh, six months. Okay. So in the last six months, hopefully you've had one of these moments. We've had dozens of these moments in our time with smoking cigars. But what's a moment in the last six months that comes to mind where it was just you and the cigar? We do so many things that are driven by community. Jay, you own a store. Scott, you're the head of an organization that is all about community and smoking cigars together. But every so often, we enjoy a moment of cigars and solitude that give us great reflection. What's a moment in the last six months that you can think of? And if you remember, what was the cigar you were smoking and why you were smoking it? Jay, we'll start with you since we put Scott. Yeah, you got to go first. Uh, no, he <laughs> no, I went first last time. You're first this time. Oh, there's so so many stories, uh, so many bad cigars, so many good cigars. Um, <laughs> and I, I can't be watching TV or podcasts or anything just by myself. Huh? No, no, that works. TV, podcasts, yeah, yeah whatever. One of the reasons that, that I like to watch podcasts, uh, and I, I am a big fan of the, the Coop Mafia or whatever it's called. Coalition. Thank you. The Coalition, whatever it's called. Um, you know, I, I smoke cigars here at the store, but it's it's always a hurried experience. And I tend to smoke a lot of Robustos and Coronas. And then at home at night after I've cooked dinner and I settle down and my wife goes to bed early. Um, I will usually break out like a Churchill and a Churchill for me is a good three, three and a half hour cigar. And, uh, you know, the, the, probably the one that I can remember and I was just telling you about earlier is uh, a couple nights ago. I don't even know what I was watching on TV. Um, I decided that I was going to smoke the, uh, Arroyo PCA, um, exclusive, which I just finished a uh, second one tonight. And, uh, I wasn't looking forward to it, not because of anything particular, but I've, you know, I'm always trying different cigars and the cigar just did not look appealing to me. You know, it wasn't super dark and it wasn't super light and maybe the packaging just didn't hit me. But from the first puff to the last puff, which was three hours later, all I remember thinking is, oh my God, I don't know anything about cigars. What, what Christian and his team did to make that cigar it was just completely um, liberating. A lot of times when you run a business, uh, at least for me, I'm, I'm always thinking about cash flow. Uh, I hate to say it, a lot of times the first thing I check in the morning is my various bank accounts to see if I have enough money to get through the week. And that's just the challenge of owning a small business. And I remember, I don't even remember what I was watching on TV. It was whatever, because I'm one of those idiots that smokes in this house. 
And I just really decompressed. I wasn't worried about money. I wasn't worried about, you know, my daughter in college. I wasn't worried about my grandkids, anything. And I was just thinking about, you know, the current state of affairs, being thankful for the things that I have, the things that are coming up, like the PCA trade show. And at times like that, I, I'm able to do a lot of planning. And for me, I don't like to make big decisions in a hurry. I can make this, I make quick decisions all the time, but it, it allows me when that cigar allows me, allowed me to sit down and think about, okay, where are we going for the next three months, six months, nine months, whatever with my business, with my family, with life. And the cigar was just such, and it just transported me. It just allowed me to focus and think. And that's why we do what we do. I mean, sometimes I smoke samples of cigars and they're not very enjoyable. Um, I've been known to leave five or six cigars in my ashtray that have only an inch or two smoked in them. And this cigar, which is probably six, six and a half inches long, I smoked it to where it was less than a quarter of an inch. And it just, it, it didn't quit. You know, sometimes cigars quit in that final third. This cigar did not quit. It went all the way through. It was fantastic flavors. And I can't even identify any of the flavors other than it just helped me relax and helped me plan and think. And I have to give a lot of credit to uh, Christian. Uh, although that asylum moment was technically an Arroyo moment, uh, that was a magnificent cigar. And that's why I'll never make a cigar brand because the amount of knowledge and experience that people like Christian Arroyo or Ernesto Frio um, or a lot of these, these blenders have, I'll, I'll just never have. And, you know, that three hours of my life, I'm thankful to Christian and his team for that cigar because it was fantastic. And then I smoked another one tonight and it was equally fantastic, but it just allowed me to decompress and, and do some long range planning and thinking about the, the weeks and months ahead. Fantastic. Beautiful moment, Jay. Scott? Yeah, so I, th um, I actually smoke a lot alone. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, I smoke in my car on, on my commute in because it's a long commute. And uh, anybody who's got to navigate DC traffic, um, smoking a cigar makes it so I don't want to either blow my brains out or blow the other driver's brains out. So it's it's a great way to uh, to go into the office. Um, and uh, but, but the uh, almost every night um, I will go and have a cigar. Um and I tend to, uh, if the weather's not perfect, I tend to just kind of go and chill in my car, and um, and I'll watch a movie. I anybody, I mean, obviously you can pick up on it pretty quickly. Whenever I do, you know, any type of show like this, or just even a conversation with me, I drop pop culture references all the time because you know, uh, number one, I for whatever reason I don't remember a lot of things, but I definitely my mind's a steel trap when it comes to pop culture stuff. So I got a lot of useless knowledge in this noggin. Um, but I like I, I love I love storytelling. Right, that's what I went to school for initially was creative writing. So I love watching TV shows and movies and things like that. But um, this was I don't know maybe a couple of weeks ago. It's the, the most recent one I can kind of think of um, where it was kind of a more profound moment. Um, but I was just watching a TV show. Um, I was watching House. It was a, it was an older episode of House. Um, and uh, there's it was when he was in the um, psychiatric hospital. And there's this woman there who couldn't talk and she was basically this concert cellist and everything else. And so that happened and whatever else. And her sister-in-law showed up and, 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 and she was able to play the cello again. And it was just the weight of that moment, the way that the story was told. Um, and uh, I was smoking an Espinosa Habano actually. Um, Great choice. And uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, just with the coffee that I normally will have with the cigar usually in the evening. Um, but it was, it was, for me, it was one of those components to where, um, I always, I always love being reminded why I love smoking cigars. And it's because, uh, especially alone, it, like Jay talks about, you know, relaxing, but for me, it puts me uh, oftentimes in a very contemplative state. And for whatever reason, watching that particular scene, just sort of the weight of like the human experience, you know, life is predominantly hard and, 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 and hard in a way that, that can grind your bones to dust. Right. Um, and so in that contemplative state, just understanding of, of having the respite of, of, of a cigar, of being grateful that, you know, I have that opportunity, uh, because of, of, of the, um, joy it would bring me in solitude and, and, um, for whatever little bit that it can, um, because life is hard and for whatever reason that scene uh it's sort of the weight of that human experience where you know life is hard and there's just you've got to be able to find just little stolen moments of joy and tranquility in your life uh to make it worth it and it's different for everybody it's kind of like you know city slickers when curly talks about that one thing um but that's kind of ultimately what it was for me that night and and um so yeah that was it good stuff well, again, folks, that was our asylum moment. Refuge is more than just a physical place. It can be a state of mind. Some of life's greatest reflections can be found in our own personal asylum. Moments like these were made for asylum cigars. So light up an asylum and choose your refuge. Gentlemen, this last segment, of course, and again, again, I've, I've thanked you guys a couple of times tonight. I cannot thank you all enough for making time for me on a Sunday evening. Scott, you mentioned the long commute that you have uh, here in a few short hours, uh, probably shorter than you'd want, uh, but you always make time for me and it really means a lot. Jay, uh, you've been a tireless supporter of my podcast, not just as a guest uh, in your second appearance, but um, just as a, just as an audience member. And uh, it, um, it, it, I, I don't think I could ever, ever show you enough gratitude for that. Um, so thank you so much, both gentlemen, for being a part of the show tonight. A great conversation about the state of PCA and what we're doing uh, to further our efforts uh, in this industry. So this last segment, of course, is our curveball segment, Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Uh, sponsors it, of course, fastballs or curveballs. It doesn't matter since the company's inception. Steve Sock has been knocking them out of the park. Count them up, guys. Eight consecutive years going for number nine in the consensus top three. Will he make it number nine? My money and my money is always good is that he will make it nine years in a row. So congratulations to our good friend, Mr. Steve Saka. All right, gentlemen. Uh, it's interesting from either running an organization uh, like the PCA um, or help running it, as Scott would probably put it better, helping running an organization like the PCA or running a small business, probably think that uh, you're running a circus sometimes, a three-ring circus. So this has to do with circus acts. Yes, it is a curveball segment after all. So... So if you were a ringmaster in a circus and you were asked to participate or uh, be a member of a circus act, what would be the most likely circus act that you would be part of in a three ring circus performance? I'll say juggling. Juggling. What would you juggle, Scott? Would you do the flaming, the, the flames, you know, the, the flaming torches? Or we were talking about bowling pins. What are we doing? What are we juggling? Uh, all of the above. I was a little bit of a pyromaniac when I was a kid. I lit a bunch of shit on fire. My <laughs> senior year of high school, we had the 
Fast forward uh, to the previous some, card. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My first trade show where there's a fire on the trade show floor. Oh, I did yeah. not light it. Um, yeah, no. So yeah, I probably juggle. I mean, hell, I, you know, played baseball and, and, uh, football and was a quarterback and everything else and stuff. And so I don't know. I just feel like, you know, it'd be fun. Chainsaws, fire, bowling pins. Why not? <laughs> Chainsaws. I've seen it done. Why not? Oh man, that's fantastic. <laughs> Jay, what about you? Well, I don't know. I've only I've only been to one circus in my life. If you don't count me watching the show Carnival on HBO, uh, but I don't know. I like to be the guy that that throws the knives. Uh, you know, you have the the woman against the the board or whatever, and you gotta hit the various things. It's very William Tell of me, but I like to be the the guy throwing the knives. Nice. I'm not so sure Hopefully you want to that tell your person. And I'm not so sure you want to tell your wife that, you know, you want to be the guy in the circus throwing knives at women. I don't know what Freud would have to say about that, but <laughs> you might want to keep that one close to the chest there, Jay. <laughs> well, just it's a it's a situation where, you know, you're building trust. Yeah. See, that's the lawyer in him right there. <laughs> yeah, see nice he, response. He, he played the, he played this pretty good. See, Andrea's next door. She's really she's closing up the shop, or if not already at home, and uh it's Jay's answering this question here in the solitude of his office. So good stuff. So juggling a knife throw right. would be the, the no, circus she, acts choice. Fantastic. Well, it is time to leave. Gentlemen, thank you so much for participating in all our fun segments and our entire conversation tonight. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, I learned something new every day. Uh, it's always my goal to learn something new every day, and I certainly get to do it uh, every week on this uh, on this podcast that I'm very honored to host. And I have amazing guests like the two of you each week. Um, so thank you very much for participating. Um, and again, it goes without saying. So big thanks to both of y'all. Thank you so much. Um, so thanks thank to our you, audience. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. And to our audience as well, who stayed up late with us like they always do every Sunday night. We thank you as well. Keep those likes, shares, and comments coming. We do broadcast live every face uh, every Sunday night from Facebook. Um, so you can check check out our Facebook page, Los Fumar. You can check out our YouTube channel as well if you want to catch the replay. Los Fumar is the channel of choice. Hit the subscribe button. If you are listening to us later, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be on iHeartRadio as well, be sure you hit the download, subscribe, and review buttons. Do me a favor. If you are a subscriber, go ahead and hit unsubscribe, but don't forget to hit resubscribe because that helps my numbers, which is always a good thing, and I can always get great guests like uh, Scott and Jay whenever I ask. So I do appreciate all those. For so from the bottom of my heart to the bottom of yours, I hope everyone is having a safe and happy holiday season. So we'll keep it going uh, in the coming weeks. We are taking a break next week, so uh, we won't have a show next week, but we will be having some great shows coming up, including a return of our cherished movie show uh, where I bring um, Sam Spencer back and we uh, have some other great guests and we discuss a film. Uh, typically one of an anniversary style and we've got a great movie coming up that we'll be uh, talking about smoking some great cigars and uh, nerding out on a fantastic flick yes i do like alliteration so for everyone out there we do appreciate everything thank you so much for tuning in tonight as always i'm bear duplessy live from the alec bradley lone star studio of azel texas he's scott pearson he's jay davis guess what everybody we'll see you next time